Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hey, it's Eric Zorn. I'm sitting in for Joan Esposito today. I'm not sure where she is, but uh, they've asked me to come sit in and, and keep her chair warm. And uh, some of you have asked me if there's any bad blood between me and Joan since I'm not on her show every Thursday the way I used to be. I just want to clear that up that uh, Joan and I are on good terms, that that uh, I've had a lot of stuff going on and lately uh, with my life, some extra projects, things I needed to work on. And it was sometimes getting in the way of traveling to see my parents and other things to have a regular Thursday commitment. So we just decided that we would do things on an ad hoc basis. But I still love Joan and I hope she still loves me anyway. <laughs> so... Um, Eric Zorn is my name. I uh, write the Picayune Sentinel newsletter. You might remember me from about 40 years at the Chicago Tribune, where I wrote a column on politics, human interest, sometimes sports, sometimes entertainment uh, on the op-ed pages there. And uh, I left in June of 21 uh, with a buyout along with uh, just about everybody else who you might remember there. Uh, Mary Schmeek left then. Darlene Glanton left then. Uh, some other uh, writers left right around the same time. Steve Chapman and a lot of your favorites. So um, I've been independent since then. And my weekly newsletter, The Picayune Sentinel, uh, comes out on Thursdays. Also, there's a special edition on Tuesdays. And you can get the Thursday edition free if you uh, email me, Eric Zorn at gmail.com, or you can just search for The Picayune Sentinel. The uh, story behind that name is that uh, my grandfather, who was uh, an eccentric and somewhat famous mathematician at the uh, at Indiana University, had a, his own little mimeograph newsletter back in the 80s and 90s, and he would it had to do with math arcana, and he would send send it out to his friends and colleagues in the in the business, and it's just about impenetrable to read, full of in jokes, and he called it the Picayune Sentinel, and so I asked my father not too long ago if he thought that uh, my grandfather, who passed away many years ago, 30 years ago, actually, if they thought my grandfather would mind if I if I grabbed the Picayune Sentinel name and used it. So I have. It's a, it's a grab bag of uh, observations and jokes and handy links and whatever else I can think of. It's kind of the column that I always kind of wanted to write, which is kind of off the top of my head, whatever I was, whatever I wanted to write at whatever length I wanted to write it, very self-indulgent in that way. And uh, uh, I sort of flip from topic to topic. I revisit topics, sometimes to a fault. Uh, other times I've totally missed topics. And, uh, and the thing I really love about it is all this uh, interaction with readers and the, uh, the public is just terrific in terms of responding to what I write and uh, sometimes crit- critically, other times, other times uh, favorably. And it, it sharpens my thinking on a lot of issues. And it just it's kind of kept me, I don't know, kept me in the game is maybe the, the right way to put it. But uh, it's something I've been unable to, uh, I can't really let go once you once you stood in the pulpit like that for so long, wagging your finger and riding your high horse and all that, it's a little difficult to climb down, or at least I found it so. Um, sometimes uh, people who, who do this for a long time just can't believe how what a relief it is not to have an opinion on everything, and, and yet I'm still someone who seems to have opinions on just about, about everything like the debt limit, which I heard in the newscast just a few minutes ago. They talked about how the Democrats and Republicans are fighting again over the debt limit and they're negotiating. The Republicans are trying to hold the Democrats hostage. They're going to let the federal government go into default and, you know, 
crater the economy over whatever little desires they have. It's not even clear what it is the Republicans want. And as as annoying as I find it for the that the Republicans do this, and as childish as I think it is, and ridiculous as I think it is, I mean they basically they we, we, the country has run up these enormous debts, which I understand what the reason for some of them. They run up these debts. And then they decide, well, are we going to pay our debts or not? Uh, and you can imagine the household equivalent of that, which is, which is, you know, you, you've you've paid for, you bought a house, and then you go decide, are you going to pay? Are you going to make the mortgage payments? And essentially, that's where we are with this. And the reason that I'm, I mean, of course, I'm annoyed that, that both parties like to use the debt limit as leverage. They like to say, look, if you if you don't if you don't come across with our demands, our legislative demands, our spending demands, then we're not going to agree to raise the debt limit. Which is an artificial construct, anyway, of course, uh, and, and, and will and will crash the economy, and everyone will blame you. Essentially, is what they're what they're looking at. And it, it strikes me that the, the Democrats have been in position over the years to have simply raised the debt limit to you know a hundred quintillion dollars, whatever, made it so that it doesn't it no longer exists. And they, yet they don't do it because they're afraid of, of being demagogued at election time, I guess. Uh, or maybe they actually like the idea of the debt limit being there as a, as a bargaining chip when next time when it comes around, when there's a Republican in the White House and Republicans are, are, uh, are running the Senate and Democrats maybe have control of Congress and they can go in and, and uh, extract their pound of flesh. But it's such a ruinous, such a dangerous game of chicken. And the Democrats, who I like to think of uh, as the saner party, especially now, uh, have not taken the opportunity to get rid of the debt limit as a tool. And so now it's coming back to bite them. And I don't know exactly what the Republicans are going to do, what they, what exactly what they want. They're unclear about the cuts they want. So, uh, so uh, it's a, it's a. A terrible thing to watch, and we've watched it many times. Those of us who've been uh, been around the news business for a long time, and we wonder what it is that they're they're thinking about. Uh, another thing that's on my mind today is I wanted to uh, uh, offer a little bit of a, of a of a remembrance or a reminiscence about Jay Marvin. Uh, Jay never worked at this radio station. In fact, he hasn't worked in Chicago in a long time. But uh, he, those of you who've been around Chicago for a while will remember him as as, uh, a, uh, as a liberal firebrand on WLSAM of all stations. Uh, that, uh, and those of you who've been around a really long time will remember Jay as the most knowledgeable country music DJ in town. Back when there were two, oh, actually three country music stations battling it out. It was WUSN, WJEZ, and WMAQAM. They were all playing country music back in the uh, urban cowboy days in the early 80s. And Jay came into town. He, he rode into town, and he was this t- terrific DJ, who just knew his country music, he knew his history. If any of you have watched the Ken Burns documentary on on country music, you'll know what a rich and amazing history country music has. Jay was really familiar with that somehow. And he was he was a, a kid from from Hollywood. He was he was uh, from from L.A. And he didn't fit the exact uh, stereotype of a country music DJ. He's a, you know, a Jewish kid from Los Angeles, but uh, but uh, he really knew his stuff. And he came in, and WJEZ, um, which is long gone now, muzzled him. They didn't let him talk much. And so finally he was hired away. And I, at the time, I was writing a column for the Tribune about radio, about the radio industry. And I, and I thought this was just a terrible loss and a shame. And it was illustrative at the time of 
of what music radio was like then and what it's like now, which is which is sort of vapid and it rewarded only the the kinds of people who had like good voices and could read the digital clock on the wall and could announce songs. And they usually would just forward announce and they wouldn't even back announce them. It was almost like background noise. And they wouldn't let Jay say anything more than the station slogans. And so he was hired away by a station that uh, ostensibly was going to recognize his talent, let him talk more. So I wrote about this at that time, and I wrote a, a column saying farewell to, to Jay Marvin, who I thought was a, a terrific, a terrific talent. So the calendar continues ahead, and then he comes back to town, and he's a, uh, a, a liberal talk show host on, on WLS. And he's uh, fiery, and that's this was back when this was back when WLS had aspirations of being sort of a balanced radio station. They had the guys like they had the guys like Mike Malloy and and Bob Lasseter and people who were he had various uh, political stripes. They had you know Don and Roma were on, and I'm not sure I, I don't I know my time frame is a little bit off on some of this stuff, but you know Roma was the liberal uh, corrective to chiding the uh, the the conservative Don Wade and so on. It was a, a station that sort of aspired to sort of sense of balance. You turn in. You might hear. You might hear views that would offend you, or upset you, or challenge you. And uh, I thought it was good radio at the time. And I thought Jay was was terrific when he was on. He was very very strong, uh, very passionate guy, and very open about some of his struggles with mental health. And uh, I, then again, he then he was he was let go again and fired, left town. And I wrote a farewell column to him. Then then he came back. Then they paired him with Eileen Byrne, who was uh, his sort of conservative counterpart, and they did a mid morning show. And and uh, he did uh, he did a lot of great liberal radio. And, and he, he and I became uh, I don't know if we were what you say we were friends, but we were very friendly. And I would talk to him about what's going on in the in the industry. And and uh, I remember one time we got our heads shaved together. It's part of a St. Baldrick's promotion. And he was he was that kind of guy, uh, big hearted guy, uh, very talented guy. Uh, but again, he, he was uh, let go, left town. And uh, then in 2010, he retired from radio and uh, was living out in, in Colorado. And uh, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's a, uh, one of these guys who was, for some of us at a certain time, a real radio legend, someone who sort of showed us what radio could be. If if it was allowed to uh, to to breathe in, in a way and and it was allowed to to be balanced and allowed to to provoke rather than just comfort, which is think of what a lot of a lot of radio stations do, and and uh, so Jay and I were in very very slight touch over the years. I just once in a while he'd reach out. He'd been he'd done a painting or written a novel or something, and we would we would exchange an email. But but um, I, re- I really had pretty much lost touch with him. And then and then on Tuesday morning, his wife Mary, whom I had, I had met. In the course of, of uh, hanging out with Jay a little bit, I uh, posted to Facebook that he had died at age 70 that morning, uh, on Tuesday morning. And uh, a lot of us reacted with, with a, a lot of sorrow. I can't say I was really surprised because he was in poor health. I knew that. And, and I had heard from, heard from him about that. And uh, it was just sort of sad that uh, that it ended that way. And that he, then he I think he <clears throat> I don't think he ever really realized how. How much he meant to a number of us out here uh, that his voice, his his passion was very motivating. And, and, I, and I'm pretty sure that some of you out there in the uh, WCPT listening audience were people who were listening to Jay Marvin back in the day when uh, when he was on, on that other radio station in town. So so uh, I just wanted to uh, to bid a fond farewell 
to Jay Marvin and uh, and to anyone who knew him and liked him, enjoyed him, loved him. Uh, it's a sad day, and uh, we uh, we will not see the like of him <laughs> again soon. Uh, I'm Eric Zorn. I'm sitting in for Joan Esposito. She is um, she's off today. And I will be back with you in a few minutes. I want to talk about the mayor's race. The Santito Jackson Show. During the Olympics, we want to see these women, and we are excited that they win. And the viewership is extremely high. They could twin the games. They could do that. They could make a business decision to grow the league. They could do that. Because these women, essentially, they are being forced to get a second job. That is really hard on the body. I mean, this is awful. The Santita Jackson Show, weekday mornings at 6 on WCPT 820. Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Well, because facts matter, I have to tell you that I'm not Jonas Esposito. I'm Eric Zorn, uh, publisher of the Picayune Sentinel, Substack Newsletter, a former Tribune columnist. And because facts matter, I have to tell you that uh, Joan will not be in tomorrow, but Tori Ryder will be sitting in. Tori's a lot of fun. Uh, Tori has interviewed me before, and uh, so she'll be sitting in for Joan, and then Joan will be back on Monday. So set your cal- mark your calendars for that. Um, those of you who are not in Chicago, maybe a little bit less engaged with the Chicago mayor's race, but I was listening to Hacks on Tap, a uh, pa- David Axelrod and Friends podcast, uh, national politics podcast, and they spent a lot of time on the uh, on the Chicago mayor's race. I think they think it's a pretty important race, maybe a signal of where things are going. And uh, I've been following it like like the, a lot of the rest of you. I've seen that there's some new polls out um, in Shia Kapos's newsletter, and she is going to be joining us in a about 15 minutes, and uh, we're going to be talking about what's going on in in the city in Illinois and uh, with with Politico. But those these, both these new polls show Lori Lightfoot narrowly out in front of of um, Willie Wilson in second place. And these are ostensibly they are objective polls; they're not commissioned by a particular candidate. I'm, I'm not exactly sure of the provenance of the polls, and I'm going to ask she about that. But but uh, the, the shows show, show that Lightfoot is about 17, 16, 17 percent, narrowly ahead of Willie Wilson. Third place is Paul Vallis. Chewy Garcia is not showing all that well in these polls, which makes me a little suspicious because I think I mean I, I think Chewy's going to do do better than what these polls are, are showing. There's a big undecided component there, too. So um, it's, uh, it's it's still very fluid. We have a little, we have less than three weeks to go before the election. People say, how can you still be undecided? And I got to say, as a Chicago voter, I'm still undecided on this. I, I have, I'm torn a couple of different ways on this race. I've been uh, uh, disappointed in Mayor Lightfoot and her uh, inability to build bridges and and, uh, and and get things done that she wanted to get done. And I think she's been, been pointlessly divisive in a lot of ways. And an illustration of that, uh, of, her, of, her, sort of her style, was at the January 26th mayoral forum uh, where the candidates, it's one of these questions the candidates were asked to say what they admired about the candidates standing next to them. This is a uh, debate cliche, I guess. It's a, but I think it's a healthy question. It's one that's designed to elicit an, an antidote to the rhetorical poison of these debates, and uh, and to let the candidates show their gracious side and their human side because that's a really important part of politics. Uh, you know, there's I don't think there's anybody on that stage smarter than Lori Lightfoot in terms of her just sheer 
sheer brains and uh but her her political IQ is 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 a little lower than uh than it, than it needs to be because grace is an important asset for an elected leader, uh, someone who's an executive is going to have to reconcile and accommodate opposing factions. And and if, if portraying your foes as irredeemable cartoon villains is no way to get anything done, as we see, as we see, you know, Lightfoot getting up in the face of some of her opponents and uh, and re- and really snapping back in ways that uh, I think are, are, have been counterproductive. Um, and I was reminded five years ago. During the Democratic debates prior to the governor's election, Chris Kennedy was asked a similar question. He was asked to say something nice about J.B. Pritzker. And it's, it's a, that is like the biggest, fattest softball pitch over the middle of the plate for someone to say something nice about J.B. Pritzker. Because all you can say, the Pritzker family has donated lots and lots of money to lots and lots of good causes. They're fabulously wealthy, and yeah, they spent a lot of money on JB's uh, re-election and his election. But they've also done a lot. They have done a lot of charitable work. It was a simple question to ask. It was one of those, you didn't have to work very hard to say something nice about JB Pritzker. I mean, you might be thinking that he has no business being governor if you're Chris Kennedy, and, and you want to beat him, and that's fine. But... <laughs> Chris Kennedy, he looks down at the lectern in silence for five seconds. And he says, uh, I mean, I'm challenged in this election because I think uh, that as Democrats, we believe government can be our ally. And when J.B. emerges as the poster child of all that's wrong with a corrupt system in our state, it's difficult for me to heap praise on him. And that's where, unfortunately, I need to end it. That was the answer that Chris Kennedy gave when asked to say something nice about J.B. Pritzker, and it was it was a, it was such a revealing moment. Not not just that he's sort of petty and nasty and doesn't think outside the box, but that he he doesn't have sort of the personal skills to deal with his enemies, to deal with people who disagree with him, to deal with people who he may be profoundly at odds with, and that's what especially an executive leader has to do. So Mayor Lightfoot. Getting back to the January 26th forum, she was asked to say something nice about Brandon Johnson, the uh, the CTU candidate, the Chicago Teachers Union candidate. And she says, he spins a good story. You can tell he was the son of a preacher. And I'm thinking, Mayor, <laughs> Madam Mayor, please. You know, that, it's so it's so easy to sum up. So you can come up with something nice to say about almost anyone. And that shows your political skills. And it actually reminded me of something uh, that I thought for a while, which is that one of the big mistakes that Lori Lightfoot made, and she may really pay dearly for this mistake, is that she did not show the proper gratitude and respect to Willie Wilson, who endorsed her after uh, in, in, in uh, the mayoral runoff over Tony Preckwinkle. And you might think, well, she didn't really need his endorsement. She won 74 percent of the vote in every every ward in the city. She clobbered Tony Preckwinkle. There was no need for any there was no need for her to be grateful for any endorsement. What she failed to see, and what was obvious, I think, even at the time, is that Willie Wilson is, for all of his his strange faults and his and his lack of policy knowledge, he is he's a well liked figure. Uh, in large part because of his extreme generosity, giving out millions of dollars and gas and groceries. And so you've got this person, and I don't remember what percentage of the vote he got in the um, um, in the, the first round of the election. I think it was like 9 or 10. I think it's around where he is. But, but that, he, that he is not 
an insignificant or, or spent force in Chicago politics, that he's got a base, he's got voters. And he's someone who I think really craves respect. And one way, one way you can see that he craves respect is how he calls himself Dr. Willie Wilson. Like, you know, his doctorates, his doctorates are nonsense. His doctorates are, have been awarded to him by educational institutions that are grateful for the money he's given them. He's a, he, he's not a doctor in any sense. And, and so he got an honorary doctorate. Nobody with an honorary doctorate should call themselves doctor. And yet he, he insists on being called this, and the, the toadies around him call him Dr. Wilson. Even some journalists, for some reason, call him Dr. Wilson. It's, it's just insane. But this is a man who, who, uh, who believes he has something to say, believes he has something to offer. And, you know, he, and he certainly is a generous man. He has offered some things. But for goodness sake, when he comes and t- give the man some respect – Bring him into the fold. Make him part of your administration. Give him a title or at least confer with him monthly as a make him make him an ally, make him feel important. And I'm not I'm not trying to patronize Wilson at all. I think he wants to be influential. He wants to help. I really I really think he does. And I think that you could make him feel part of something like that rather than keeping him away. And and, and Wilson has complained that Lightfoot like, wouldn't take his calls, wouldn't take meetings with him, which was an amazingly bad political judgment on on uh, uh, on her part, it was just, just, just the worst. And you, know, you could also, she also could have seen that Jamal Green, who is, uh, uh, who is also on the on the debate stage, that he was someone who, I think, Jamal is a very talented uh, young man. He's got a bright future in politics. I don't think he's going to do that well in this particular election, but I think he's going to uh, uh, be a, be a force in Chicago politics for a long time. And I think he's someone who has a lot to offer. And you could you have brought him in. Now, I'm not saying he wouldn't have run for mayor, but but there's a way. Of keeping people close, um, that that is just a, a, some smart politics, and she did not not do that. Uh, I don't know. I don't know why. Um, another thing, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe somebody out there can help me. Uh, give a call into the station here seven six three nine two seven eight. That's seven six three. Uh, 9278 in area code 773. Uh, if you know who was heckling Brandon Johnson and why, uh, maybe we'll get to that later in the show. But during the debate, uh, there were people who were chanting and shouting in the audience. I, I couldn't tell on watching on TV what they were talking about or, or why Brandon Johnson. So it's very unusual for in, in, in a town like Chicago, but a blue town like Chicago, to have somebody uh, have somebody heckled from essentially from the right. I'm not sure who was who was. Paying for this, or who was organizing it, or what they wanted—I don't think they gave any interviews afterwards. Uh, the reporters in the rooms didn't seem to know; they didn't seem to report what was going on. So, so uh, I'd like to know. I, I do know, though, that that Johnson's got this one billion dollar plan that the uh, uh, Sun Times has called the "Tax the Rich" plan to bankroll social services. It's a very, very progressive, very liberal program with a lot of new taxes, a lot of you know head taxes and financial transaction taxes and things that that are are, are worth the. Discussing, and they may. You know, you, the, the obvious question is: If you raise certain taxes like this, are you going to drive businesses out of town? Uh, but I'm not sure who was who was heckling him, and I don't know why they were heckling him. Uh, and I'd really like to know if somebody knows. Uh, call or, or, or uh, email me, ericzorn at gmail and we'll and we'll talk about it. We're going to take a break uh, right about now. Is that right, Lady B? Yeah, we're going to take a break, and then we'll be back with Shia Kapos after the bottom of the hour. Your long drive home just got even easier. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez. Now weeknights from 5 to 7 p.m. on WCPT 820.
This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Yeah, this is not Joan Esposito. It's Eric Zorn sitting in for Joan Esposito. Joan will be back on Monday, and Turi Ryder will be in this chair tomorrow hosting you. Now, political news junkies and informed citizens throughout Chicago and Illinois, and I hope that describes you, they start their day by reading Illinois Playbook. It's a comprehensive political newsletter written by Shia Kapos that hits inboxes Monday through Friday around 7 a.m., She's been a journalist in Chicago since 2001, first at the Tribune, then as a correspondent for People, a freelancer for the New York Times, then with Cranes and the Sun-Times. In the summer of 2018, she took over the Illinois Playbook when the founding writer, Natasha Karecki, became a national correspondent for Politico. And today she both covers and drives the local news cycle as one of the most influential reporters in the state. And I'm pleased that she's made time to chat with us today. Hello, Shia. Hi, it's so nice to be with you. It's great to have you. Hey, before we get into dishing about what's going on um, and what you've got in today's playbook, I think you to tell me a little bit more about yourself. Like, where'd you grow up? What did your folks do? That kind of stuff. Oh, oh. well, I uh, am the daughter of public school teachers in the state of Utah, if you can believe that. Um, uh, so I, you know, grew up in a household that was, you know, really focused on education and, interestingly, really big newspaper readers. You know, like, we used to sit around the table, my three sisters and I, with my parents for breakfast, even on school days. And, like, my parents would read the paper, and we, you know, we ate our breakfast with them and talked about what's in the paper. So uh, that's kind of how I grew up, and so journalism was a very interesting thing for me early on. So was this was this like in a big in a big city in Utah or in Salt Lake City or a little in a little farming town farming community outside of Salt Lake City? So I actually learned how to drive a tractor before I learned how to drive a car. Oh, that's great! And along have... with being teachers, my my father had a big farm. His his family had a farm, so so we worked on the farm. So they they were public school uh, teachers. Yes. And yes. and what grades? What levels were they teaching? My dad was a high school teacher. My mom taught elementary, but they both had um, uh, an emphasis on special education. Oh. So, you know, they both had special ed kids, you know, you know, when there were, uh, they didn't have special ed classes back then, but if you were uh, a kid that might have been considered special education, you were put into classrooms with teachers like my parents. And they, you know, um, you know, help kids along to, to stay in the system and get through school. And uh, it, it, it was a hard job for both of them because high school kids in, in that situation are, you know, it, it's a struggle to make sure you can stay in a high school, in a, in a regular high school. Absolutely. So, so you have two sisters, you said? I have three. Three sisters. Three sisters. Yes. Uh, yeah. Older, younger? They're all younger. And they all, um, one of them had moved to L.A., and she's back in Utah, so now they're all three there. So it's interesting the dynamics of the sister relationship changed, because I was the, am the oldest and was always kind of the bossy, organized one. But because I'm not there, I'm like, I'm like falling down the ranks now, so I just do whatever I'm told when, when the time comes to do things. <laughs> are, are, you, are your folks still with us? 
My father is not, but my mom is, yes. Wow. So are they taking care of her, or is that... Uh, oh, no, my mom's pretty young. Pretty young, okay. Uh, she's, yeah, yeah, she gets around. She's uh, She takes care of all of us. Oh, wow, that's amazing. My mom turns 91 in two days, and uh, she's not in any position to take care of anyone, unfortunately. Um, so so you're, you're a kid, you're reading newspapers. Is something that you, you were thinking, like, you want to be a writer? You want to be a journalist? What's, what's, your, what's the young Shia thinking she wants to do? Um, you know, I didn't know. I worked on my high school newspaper, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, and I worked on the yearbook staff, and I enjoyed that. I loved putting together the whole thing, you know, whether it was the newspaper for the week or the yearbook, you know, for the year. Uh, and then um, when I was a senior in high school, I applied to the Salt Lake Tribune. And I got a letter back from the editor saying, thank you very much, but we don't hire, you know, 17-year-olds. <laughs> and so, you know, then I started going to college and didn't think anything of it. And then I got a call one day. So, uh, just let me back up a little bit. You, you, which college did you go to? University of Utah. Okay. And, and did, were you studying journalism or? Uh, yes. Yes, I was studying journalism. And working on the uh, Daily Utah or whatever they call it. The, the Daily Utah Chronicle. Oh, that was uh, close. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but while I was uh, just starting, um, I got a call one day from the editor of the Salt Lake Tribune. I had turned 18 now, and he said, I'd like to interview you. I said, great. You know, I came down. I I. I had just gotten a car. It was a stick shift, and I didn't know how to drive it very well, and it was very stressful. I got to the interview. Um, I get there. It's like a 2.30 interview, and, you know, I don't even remember how it went. But at the end, he said, okay, you know, he took me to what was the, the Salt Lake Tribune library. It was before they had Internet. You can get how old I am. Uh, and he said, well, you know, this is where the files are, and this is where you type in the little cards for the index, and these are the phones, and uh, and here are the women that you'll be working with. And I, I was like, what? Um, so he hired me right then. So I had to call my mom because I was living at home, and I'm like, I got hired, so I'm going to be here until 11 o'clock at night. It was a 3 to 11 shift. And... Uh, and so that started. I, I worked in the library at the Salt Lake Tribune and put my way through school through that. And, um, you know, I went home that day and my mom was like, you what, what's, You smell like smoke. Where, have you been in a bar? What's going on? Now that's aging you right there. Like, oh, my gosh, Mom, everybody, you know, everybody smokes. Because, <laughs> you know, my school teacher parents never smoked. We didn't have that in our house. You know, nothing like that ever. We didn't know anything about that. And it was a real eye opener to be in a newsroom with all of that. So, so, so you you started off in in what we call the morgue in uh, in, in the newspapers, right? I mean, you're you're, you're taking yeah. clips and filing them, and and reporters will call and say, "I'm doing something about Alderman Johnson," and you've got to go or Councilman Johnson, whatever whatever they are there, and you had to go find the yeah. clips and and help them out, and um, right, and, and you know and that, then that I got promoted. I got promoted to be the indexer, so that meant I was like Google back then. I went through the entire paper and indexed everything, names, you know, places, subjects, put it in the files, um, clips, everything, put it in the little envelopes, 
And, um, yeah, that's how I started. That was through college. There's something intoxicating, though, about that, about being in a newsroom. And there's also something important about doing that job well. And and I, I'm sure you can attest to this, and you know this, that, that, that back when we did have uh, it, library employees, I don't think they exist anymore. Right? I don't think they, they didn't exist at the Tribune when I left two years ago. So I'm not sure what pu- publications have them. You know, you just go in, go online to Nexus or whatever and find what you need. But back before before all that, before we were all digitized, having somebody who was really good at that, and there were there were uh, men and women at the Tribune working in in reference, who were like partners. And there were there were uh, I mean one name that comes to mind is Judy Marriott, who would get like bylines and credit lines. She was so good at the Tribune. She was she was helping out reporters so so much. So that job is not. I mean, it sounds just clerical. But it is important in, in, in the journalistic, or at least in the old journalistic uh, ecosystem, to have somebody who could do that and do it well. Yeah, absolutely. And you can't make mistakes when you do that, because <laughs> as you know, as a reporter, looking at those old files, when you're trying to find something and it's not in the right place, or you you know, it's very frustrating. So you have to be really careful to, to make sure you did it, did it right. And so you put yourself through college doing this. Yeah, I did it through college, uh, and then I got a job working as a copy editor and did a little reporting, you know, then moved to San Francisco where I was a radio reporter. Oh, really? That's not on your resume. I was looked online that you get your resume. I didn't didn't see radio journalism. I I don't know how far to go back. Um, And then I'm not really a radio voice person, but I learned a lot doing that, you know, and then... um, uh, my husband and I, you know, decided we're going to travel a little bit. We lived in back east for a year. Uh, then I went back to the Salt Lake Tribune, and I became um, the political editor. Wow. Uh, which people here don't realize. Like, they think that I just jumped into politics here in Illinois. But I was the political editor for the Salt Lake Tribune, and um you know, it was Utah is very different than Illinois, of course, uh, but it has a lot of similarities too. Where you have one dominant political party that controls both houses, you know, in the chamber and the governor's office, <laughs> and you know, northern Utah, like northern Illinois, is more uh, liberal and. Southern Utah, like Southern Illinois, is very conservative. Mm -hmm. And when I was in Utah, you know, running that team, you know, I remember there was uh, there were bills to keep Southern Utah lawmakers from bringing guns into the Capitol. (laughs) You know, it's like, no, you cannot bring a gun into the Capitol, but they had to have a law to make sure that they didn't bring guns to the Capitol. Anyway. Well, you you must have kept your hand in. I mean, you said you went to San Francisco, uh, and then you you and your husband were traveling and living out east for a while. You said, yes, for about uh, a year. And and he, you met him in college, I'm guessing. Yes, he was the editor of the paper, and I was the editorial writer. Oh, awesome. and we knew. Cool. I knew he was the guy because when it came time to, you know, you sit down, you know, you're in college and you think you're so important, you know, let's talk about what our editorial will be for the week and you or the day and you, you know, everybody gives their opinions and and you realize, you know, oh, I always aligned with P 
Peter, my husband, mm. and on politics. So, so you, you know, we developed a friendship, and next thing you know, we're married. Well. <laughs> Did you get married while you were in college? No, we, we uh, graduated. Graduating. Uh, so I just want to just clarify this timeline. You, you uh, were working through college, and you, then right after college, you go to San Francisco and do your, your uh, radios? It was like another year. Yeah, it was another year that I that we went to San Francisco. And so, what, what was what was Peter doing in San Francisco? He well, he uh, worked at a place called uh, was that Information Access. So that's right when the internet started becoming a thing. So he got involved in different uh, publishing uh, companies that published. I want to say that was like an indexing, a, a bigger, like digitized indexing company, but I can't, I can't remember exactly. And, and so, but you must have, you must have kept your hand in, as I said, you must have been like staying in touch with, with the uh, Salt Lake Tribune, right? For them to hire you oh, yeah, at yeah. such a good job. Yeah. And my sister worked there, you know, my sister ended up working there uh, when she was in college too. Um, and she became a very noted education writer and then became the famous food writer for the Salt Lake Tribune. Really? So, uh, yes. So we were both, you know, very into the journalism world. And, and the other two sisters, are they into those things too? No, uh, they both work in the business world. They were a little smarter. <laughs> All right, making more money, I'm sure. Hey, you yeah. know, we're only up to we're only up, only up to like the the nine. We're still in the nineties, and we uh, and it's uh, time for us to take a break. Uh, can you come back after the break, and we'll uh, we'll pick up the story when you come to Chicago? Because I'm really a lot to hear about your your time here before before Politico. Okay. Yes, absolutely. This is Shia Kapos, uh, who is the author of the Illinois Playbook, and I'm Eric Zorn, formerly of the Tribune, and we're talking about. Shia Capos and her career and the uh, essential newsletter that she writes. We'll be back after these. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. It's Eric Zorn sitting in for Joan Esposito. Joan will be back on Monday, and I'm talking with Shia Kapos. Shia writes the Illinois Playbook, and if you don't subscribe, I don't know why you wouldn't. It's a free newsletter. comes out every morning. It's got all you need to know about state and local politics, and uh, she has been assembling it for, what, you got five years going right now, right? Not quite. I think it's been four and a half. Four and a half coming up on five. And I was sort of getting getting a little backstory about about you know how you how you got to where you are now. This uh, to to being one of the most influential journalists in the state, in, in one of the most I important states. State me, but I appreciate it. Oh, I don't think so. I, I you know people talk about you all the time in terms of what you read, and, I, and certainly it's it's uh, the first thing I read every morning. So so uh, and and I. I like to get the word out about it. I think that there are a, a couple of newsletters in town. I read I read you first in the morning, and then a couple hours later, Charlie Meyerson's uh, Chicago Public Square comes out, and he he often quotes you because he's read you and and uh, and amplifies what you've had to say. But uh, he has a good digest too of what's going on. It's not as long as yours, not as as uh, as ambitious, but it's uh, it's a really useful thing to to look at. Anyway, um, we were talking about in the in the nineties. You were in in um, 
Salt, in Utah, and you were the, the the political editor, right? State or political reporter? What was the the uh, political editor for the Salt Lake editor. Tribune? I was I was the political editor for the Salt Lake Tribune. I was pretty young, and all the reporters on my team were veteran political reporters. Which was, I mean, I looking now, I realized like the big editor at the time probably figured that way that that I'm not going to tell these guys what to do. <laughs> Uh, they didn't need the kind of, uh, you know, line editing that maybe a junior reporter would, would need. What they needed was somebody to be organized, to, you know, uh, keep the wheels moving, to go into the meetings and pitch the stories and be their cheerleader and their advocate. Uh, um, so uh, that's what I did. I feel like, I mean, looking back, I think I would be a better editor for them now than I was then. But we did great work. And, you know, one of the things that I did, actually, it was when print, I mean, we had the Internet now, uh, but it was still, you know, print, the print newspaper was still the big kahuna. You did put all your work into that. And one of the things I did during every legislative session was every day was to pull together a whole page of legislative news so that meant I had to design the page and decide which lead story and, and what would be the little brief and what would be the fun quote of the day and, the you know, birthdays and blah, 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 you know, all the little tidbits. Um, and it was, it was an ordeal because, as you remember, you know, you've got to do a lot. It's a lot different when, you're, when you have the computer to pull pages together like that. And um, and I laugh now because I think, oh, here I am pulling together a playbook, and it really is kind of like what I was doing way back then. It sounds almost exactly the same in a way. Like you're you're just ag- you're aggregating stuff. I mean, one of the things, and, and we'll t- talk a little bit more about the playbook uh, in a little bit. But but the playbook is a combination of of, of curated material. And straight out reporting. I mean, you, you uh, you're you're breaking stories in the playbook. You're also uh, amplifying stories that other people have done, and uh, which is which is why it's it's such an essential read. It's not just what Chia Kapos has found out. It's what Chia Kapos has found out plus what she has read and and has been uh, has been looking at. So so it sounds like that's the kind of thing you were doing back back in the '90s, back when you had to actually assemble it without the. Uh, yeah. The help of the computer, so right. so. And did you start? A, had you started a family at that point? No, we start. Well, let's see. At the very end of the nineties, we started. Yes. The reason I ask is I know that, that you and I overlapped. We were both parents at Lakeshore Prep, that school right. down there near the old Cabrini Green. I remember we we used to run into each other there, and I don't know. How, I don't know how old you're. Well, you could tell me how old are your kids now that were at Lakeshore yeah. Prep back when we were. I have a. Yeah, <laughs> I have a 25 year old and I have a teenager. So we had one uh, move to Chicago. <clears throat> you know, that's when I knew you, Lecture Prep. Uh, and then um, some years later, we had our second son. So, uh, so I'm still going through the high school thing right now. Oh like my you goodness! Said goodbye to that, and I, <laughs> I'm still doing that. I love it. I'm excited to still be doing it because you know it's just a. I'm going to be sad when he goes off. It, it, it's funny. You live in the city or the or suburbs? Oh, in the city. Yes. I'm in uh, West Rogers. In, so, so where does he, where does he go to high school? 
Uh, well, I don't want to say. Oh, okay, fine. I'm sorry. I forget, I, cause I forget we're on the radio here. But uh, so your 25-year-old is is exactly, I mean, I, my son is 25, so they must have been at school at the same time uh, or in the same yeah. classes and so on. But uh, yeah. uh, anyway, so so uh, what's he doing? Well, I don't want to say either. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. They don't let me talk about them. They don't let me go on social media about them. I'm very quiet. I have to follow the goals. I, I totally understand that. So anyway, so so you're in Utah. You're, you've got a young family. And the, the Tribune comes calling. Is that Was that how that worked? Or did you go to the no, Tribune? No, actually, no. My husband uh, back then worked for something called CitySearch.com. Remember that? And he was no. one of their big... Uh, oh, you must remember City Search. Well, it's gone now anyway. So um, City Search was some, was an online um, site for restaurant reviews, movie reviews. You know, it was all the fun news, and every a bunch of cities across the country had it. And he was based in Chicago and oversaw, like, uh, I don't know if it was the Midwest. He oversaw the City Search site in a bunch of cities here. Uh, now, eventually they realized, like newspapers in a way, that why do we have a movie critic in every city when we only need one that can be used for all of the sites? <laughs> you know, and so then they pared down. And uh, anyway, that's a separate story. But we moved here because of him. And uh, and then that's uh, then I uh, called the Tribune. And uh, somebody I knew introduced me to somebody, and then I got an interview uh, to be a two-year resident, and that was 2001. I remember that. I remember that program where they would have experienced journalists from other papers. Yeah. It kind of replaced the internship program that used to be there. But you know, we'd have these. Yeah. We'd have they'd bring in. Uh, people like you, people like like uh, my friend Steve Mills, uh, who was uh, a very experienced journalist in Rochester, and they would say, "Hey, you're yeah, here for." Steve was right before me, I think. Right. Yeah. Right. So, um, and uh, and and then and then they would say, "You get to work here for two years with no promises, no guarantees." In fact, most of the people who they brought in, they didn't hire after two years. And these were. Exp- these I were- did not get hired, and, and that was fine. I mean, I. It was a tremendous opportunity because here I wanted to stay in journalism. I was moving to Chicago. I knew. I mean, I mean, I knew um, his, historical stories about Chicago journalism and his Chicago, but not to be, you know, a boots on the ground reporter. So being a general assignment reporter for the Chicago Tribune was tremendous because I traveled all over the city doing a range of stories. I knew every, you know, nook and cranny. I probably have been to more neighborhoods than a lot of uh, people in the city because of that job. And some of the, actually some of the sources that I developed back then, I still call today, which is always kind of funny because there was one I just spoke to and we were laughing about it like, oh, remember we talked after 9-11 because, <laughs> because he was involved in some legal aspect of that. So. Yeah, I mean, some of those jobs when you're, and I, I did some, some GA as well, and where they just send you out different places and you never know, I mean, they can say, grab your hat and coat and go, and you, they right. send you to a place you've never been before. you got to talk to people and you've got to develop an instant expertise in whatever's going on and uh, and come back and write something on a tight deadline. It's it's an incredible experience and uh, uh, one that most of us try to get away from because it's, it's uh, kind of draining. 
and and uh, and that's back when you know um, the Tribune and the Sun Times would do this, uh, and maybe they still do to some extent. You know, there could be uh, a shooting or a murder someplace, and they would send you know me or some other you know, general assignment reporter to the neighborhood where it happened. And we have to knock on doors to say, did you know the victim? Or did you know the shooter? And, and can you talk to me? And, and sometimes it was a little frightening, you know, <laughs> uh, partly because I didn't know where I was because I was still new to the city. I mean, now I, I it doesn't bother me at all. But <clears throat> at the time I was a little freaked out. I call my husband like, Oh my God, just so you know, I'm headed over here. And, and then I realized he was so worried that I just stopped telling my family what I was doing. You know, I don't, I didn't want to worry them. So. Now, were, you, were you working days or nights? Do you remember? Both. Both. You know, yeah. you know it would depend. You know, I think mostly days, uh, uh, like 9-11 was, I remember, you know, vividly that was a day shift, <laughs> you know, but every once in a while it would be a night shift. And and uh, there was always this this uh, this understanding though that they were trading you that these this residency program was really trading you a really really powerful line on your resume for for two years of work and they they lured a lot of people it sounds like you were going to come here anyway you were going to come to Chicago anyway but there are some right. journalists who pulled up stakes and left and came uh, and moved your lock stock and barrel just acting on faith that the that a Tribune oh. credential was going to get them get them work and that that kind of yeah. did work for you right i mean you did uh, you were able to i was looking at looking at your resume again you got uh, you got uh, a, a considerable amount of work based on what your experiences in in uh, at the tribune right yeah yeah after the tribune i worked as um I was the Midwest correspondent for People Magazine, and I would be sent all over the Midwest to do, in a way, similar stories, general assignment kind of stories. And I did that for, I would say, three years. I can't even remember. And towards the end of that, it got kind of strange because, you know, I would get sent on a lot of a lot of celebrity stories, uh. which at one point I was like, Am I really? Is this what I'm doing? <laughs> um, and uh, but about that time, uh, an opening had come up at Cranes, and I had done a few freelance pieces for them, and I was hired well, that, uh, there to hey, work can, on their business of life section. Can we break for news and come back? I really want to pick up this story. Can, can you can you hang on? Is that is that all right? Great, thank you. Uh, this is Shia Kapos I'm talking to. She writes the Illinois Playbook at Politico, your daily newsletter that you must, must subscribe to if you don't already. Uh, I'm Eric Zorn sitting in for Joan Esposito. We're going to take a break now for some news and other fun stuff, and we'll be right back with more with Shia Kapos. The Rick Smith Show, live, weeknights from 8 to 10 p.m. Look at what's happening. The Rick Smith Show on WCPT 820. Everyone is talking about it. Chicago's progressive talk. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. A WCPT 820. This is Eric Zorn sitting in for Joan Esposito. I'm a former Tribune columnist. I write the uh, Picayune Sentinel Substack newsletter, and I am speaking with Shia Kapos, who writes the daily Illinois playbook, 
newsletter for Politico, the essential reading for anyone who's interested in current events and public affairs and politics, especially in, in Illinois. And she and I have been talking about, I've just been getting the Shia Capo story uh, in detail, and it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting. And we've gotten... <laughs> gotten Shia's life story up to uh, uh, 2006. And in 2006, you were uh, just ending your career with People magazine. You were doing a Midwest correspondent for them, covering too many celebrities, I think you said. It was too much. And you were also, I think, freelancing for the New York Times around that time, too, right? I I was doing that at the same time. And that um, that was kind of spot news kind of stuff. Uh, it was fun. I worked with Monica Davy. You know Monica. I know Monica, she, yeah, uh, very well. She, and she was great to work with. Um, uh, and that was a good thing to put on my resume as well. It was great. And then Cranes came calling. Is that right? Cranes uh, Chicago business? Yes. Yeah. And uh, I worked for Andrea Hainis, who um, you probably knew when she left Cranes and went to the Tribune. Oh, yeah. I know Andrea very well. She uh, she and I were on the... Uh, she was on the editorial board, and I was uh, an editorial board adjacent, so we used to be in meetings together all the time. Um, so, yeah. You, you work for her or with her? I worked for her. She was my boss. Okay. She is a great ideas person and just had this really wonderful sense of, of enlivening, is that the right word, um, the, the lifestyle section of Cranes. And uh, along with writing um, like feature stories every once in a while, she had me, she started the Taking Names column and that really um, elevated my uh, work in Chicago. I The Taking Names column was kind of, um, I don't want to say gossipy, because it was reported like news, like I would report anything, uh, but it had a, a little breathless to it about people and what they were doing around town. And uh, the goal was, was to write about notable names and what they did away from the office. So that's how I got to know <laughs> J.B. Pritzker because he would donate, you know, millions of dollars to organizations around town, and Sam Zell, and uh, you name it. All You know, I had a list of billionaires on my next to my desk on who I needed to tick off and, and do profiles of. You got to know Sam Zell, huh? <laughs> uh, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> and then... Uh, not not, not and, someone who I uh, have fond thoughts about, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but he was very and is very philanthropic, and so a lot of what I wrote about was how they spent their money when they weren't working. Um, and I did that for ten years. Uh, then Cranes kind of shifted management, and I took that to the Sun Times, and I did that for two years there under Jim Kirk, and he uh, uh, he was great to work with. But that was when the Sun Times was kind of spiraling. You know, and um, and they couldn't keep me. They just couldn't. They couldn't afford me. Uh, and so I took a job at a financial news company, writing, kind of doing similar work, but it was behind a paywall. They were based in New York. I loved it. It was great work. And then it's while I was there that I got a call from somebody who said you should apply for you know, uh, the Politico job. And I was like, oh, 
I don't know, I'm really happy where I am. But I interviewed with them, and I loved the editors at Politico. Um, I, you know, I didn't think I would get the job because I was a little too enthusiastic about it. <laughs> I was like, I remember, I, I still, I'm so embarrassed. I was like, I am made for this job because <laughs> I would, I because I knew the newsletter is something I knew that I could just really wrap my arms around and really do well on, and I was worried that they would be scared by that, but. Of course they weren't, they, because they know how hard it is, uh, and so they were excited to have somebody who was excited about it. Well, you had been, obviously, I'm sure you've been reading Natasha Karecki, uh, who is a former, f- former Sun-Times writer, and she, and she had started Illinois Playbook, and, right. and, and I'm sure in reading that you were saying, like, that's in my wheelhouse, that's in my wheelhouse, the, you know, because you had done such a range of reporting with movers and shakers, politicians, Government, politics, that kind of thing—that that that it all it all kind of worked together, um, kind of a dream job. Then, yes. At the time, I was worried because I hadn't done a lot of Illinois political quote per, reporting per se. You got a Springfield. Um, so she, yeah, she she that was her forte because she'd been a political writer, as you know, at the Sun Times. So it, she was a really a real force, and I I wasn't sure that I could. Um, you know, get up to speed. I, eventually I did. I think I was a little slower getting up to speed personally, but um, I think readers and editors were patient and, and now it, it, it works well. Well, yeah, I mean, for, for anybody out there who doesn't, hasn't seen the playbook, and again, you can go to what, politico.com or, and, and subscribe to it and they'll, they'll mail it to you every morning. Uh, it's an ambitious undertaking every morning. I mean, it is, it is long, yeah. it is thorough, and I am just a little bit curious about how you manage to pull that off every day. I mean, five days a week. Yeah, it is exhausting. Like by tomorrow, after I post on Fridays, I usually like pass out for an hour because it's been like I'm on a treadmill for five days straight. Uh, It's a physical and like it's physically challenging. I I don't drink anymore. Except on Fridays, right? Well, sometimes, but even I've been trying to cut back on that, too. I don't. I try to do low carb so I, my energy level stays up. I mean, literally, I'm trying to change. I have to, like, make sure that I keep myself, you know, healthy to do it. Otherwise, you'll just crash, you know, by Wednesday. So what, what, is, it, what is a typical day like for you? you? When do you start worrying about the next days? I guess probably the second you wake up. But, but when do you start putting it together, the, the, the playbook? Well, I start putting it together as soon as I file that day. So in the morning, I wake up between 4.30 and 5. No. Oh, yeah, yeah. Depending on how much I've done the night before. So I wake up and I, I, you know, I give it one fresh look because I've already worked on it the previous day. So I give it another read. I look through... um, you know, online, see if uh, the Tribune, Sun-Times, WGN, anybody has put out new stories that I should weave in to see if there's something breaking that I need to swap out. Like when Madigan was charged a few years ago, that, I think the Sun-Times broke that and it didn't come out till 6 a.m. So that meant I had to swap what I had and, and lead with that, you know, to, to make that the news of the day. Um, of course, giving sometimes credit 
um, and then I turn, I, I post it to my editor who spends an hour with it or so. And then, um, and then I clean out my document from the day and then update the birthdays. And after it's posted, I answer all the trivia questions and the reader digest questions. And, and then I try to think about what the next day will be, uh, you know, I try to set up interviews. You know, it just kind of, it, it's, I, I have to wait and see what the day holds. Oftentimes you don't know till the end of the day, like, so what, what the story should be. So what, which frequencies are you monitoring? Are you looking at, at Capital Facts? Are you looking at uh, Daily Line, Block Club? What, what do you, when you're like... I, I, uh, I don't get those. Uh, sometimes I look at Block Club, but Block Club is very... It's very local, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think more big picture, and so uh, it's more what Tribune, Sun-Times, ABC7, NBC5, Twitter. Twitter. We're chatting about on Twitter. What people give me... I mean, I, I talk to a lot of people all the time, and people send me stuff so if I'm seeing something that's interesting that I can pursue on my own because it you know part of my job is to break stories yeah at the the end of every week you know the editors say what were your scoops and we all share what our scoops were and if she doesn't have scoops that's not good so so I need to have scoops myself and uh so I uh so that's kind of what I'm doing all day, weighing what should be the top and what should be second. And, and, and I try to, because it's Illinois playbook, it's not Chicago playbook. Right. So that means if I, like, I don't want to run with a mayor's race every day, even though I do find that very fascinating. Yeah. I, I need to switch it up and talk about Springfield or talk about today. I talked about Mike Quigley in Washington. So, right. Uh, I try to switch it up because... If you read Playbook, you know, there are two kinds of people that read Playbook. There are hardcore political junkies who could probably who probably know more than I do. Um, and then there are casual readers who are interested, but they don't want to be too sucked into minutia. So it's, my challenge is writing it in a way that's interesting to the political junkie who knows everything, but also interesting to somebody who's just like my neighbor, you know? <laughs> now, I'm, I'm interested in what you do to, uh, to decompress a little bit during the day, how you're, how you're actually day, when you, how you keep sane before you file and before you write things and how you just keep, keep life in your, keep your life in balance. Um, and can we get to that right after the one last break and we'll finish up with Shia Kapos? Uh, I'm Eric Zorn, sitting in for Joan Esposito, and we'll be right back. Hi, this is Patty Vasquez. I am honored to have hosted Driving It Home for the last year, but it seems like we never have enough time to talk. And since I've been doing the traffic reports, I realize how long it actually takes to drive it home. So as we head into the holiday season, I want to spend more time with you, and we've decided to add an hour to the show every day. Thanks to my sponsors, Kids Above All, European and U.S. Auto Body, and Monaco Brewing for making this all possible, and of course, my WCPT family. And I couldn't do this without you. So tune in every day, 5 to 7 p.m., Monday through Friday. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. 
This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Hey, it's Eric Zorn sitting in for Joan Esposito. We're talking to Shia Kapos, and uh, we have about 10 more minutes to go. And we are really, really fortunate to get this kind of time from Shia because, as we've been hearing, her days sound like they're crazy. Uh, getting up at 4 in the morning and starting to put together this uh, very ambitious Illinois playbook newsletter she writes for Politico. Shia, what do you do to uh, keep your sanity during the day? Do you go to you? Well, I have a teenager, so a lot of it, like my downtime is driving to pick him up maybe from school, watching him play basketball. You know, that's kind of a good downtime for me because I, I, and I, he doesn't want to hear about work. So, so I don't talk about it. I, you know, um, and then I have really good friends. We, you know, I'm in this uh, uh, poker club uh, with a bunch of uh, friends that you, they're former journalists and some are current journalists. Uh, so you should, I'll tell you about names afterwards. I'm okay. On the air, but, <laughs> but we play once a month and we have big dinner parties and, you know, that's a, a fun release. Um, because as you know, you know, when you're a journalist, it, it kind of, uh, what you do kind of just like is in your head all the time. And so it's, it is nice to be uh, to have friends and people around you who understand that. So if I say, "Oh my gosh," at, at the last minute, I can't do this because I've got to go cover whatever. Um, those are the friends who are like, "Okay, no problem," because they understand yeah. the job. <clears throat> totally been there. And is is your husband still in in communications and journalism? Uh, no, he uh, and he was smart too, and also switched gears and went into working for nonprofits. Oh. So is he, is he an administrator or? He was, yes. Yeah. Nice, nice, nice. Um, well, just real quickly, about, let's let's talk a little bit. I, mean, I think we've kind of caught, caught up where you are. Is this a job that you can you envision having? Just this is the way you want to go? Do you want to do, do other things you have in, in mind? Yeah, already. I mean, I already do more big picture stories for Politico on the Politico homepage. Um, and those stories are really time consuming. So it, it makes it, it does make it difficult to do the playbook sometimes. Um, like a, a few weeks ago, I was just involved in doing a piece about uh, border, border towns in states like Illinois uh, where abortion is legal. And, it, and these are little tiny towns that are being transformed because abortion clinics are being set up in their towns. And so it was a very labor-intensive interview process, and so. But I loved it. That was really fun to do that kind of work, and um, and so I'll probably shift at some point to do more of that. Um, I don't know. No, I enjoy doing playbook and and. I'll be doing that for a while. Yeah, I had, I had some of the same feelings when I was writing a column for all those years. You get seven hundred words, and and you're sort of very, you're limited on what you can get into, how much time you can devote to any one particular subject. And every once in a while, I would be uh, I would get a freelance assignment that was, that was somewhat longer, or the Tribune would let me write a magazine story back when they had a magazine, and it was like it sort of reminded me a bit of of why I got into journalism in the first place, which is how fascinating it is to, to dig into other people's lives and other people's existence. It's really it's fun to find out all this information uh, and, and dig around and look for scoops, but it's also fun to sort of 
enter another existence or enter another world. And that's kind of sounds like what you were doing when you're going to these border towns. You're actually immersing yourself into something, not just trying to crank it out. So it's a, I can certainly understand that, that impulse. Yeah. Um, but I love doing the playbook. I love the subject matter. I love the political, you know, community that, you know, because I feel like in a way I'm part of that in a way, uh, part of the discussion. And uh, it's uh, especially in Illinois, you know. Politics in Illinois is just a fun place to be. Oh, uh, well, in the few minutes we have left, I wanted to talk to you about uh, this, in this morning's playbook. Uh, you told me it was something that I didn't know, which is there are two new polls out in the mayor's race from 1983 Labs. Yeah. And they show Lori Lightfoot narrowly leading Willie Wilson, them running one and two. Um, yeah. What do you make of that? <laughs> I don't know. Somebody else called me, um, and I can't say who, that, that they have a poll that shows similar, that shows Lori and Wilson similarly tied, but that Vallis is ahead. So um, I think anybody who thinks they know what is going to happen doesn't really know. <laughs> Yeah, I was surprised to see because because Willie Wilson had not been showing all that well in some of these other polls, but but of course we don't know what to make of of these polls, right? I mean they 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 are, um, uh, you know, I mean the nineteen eighty three labs. So there's two of them, right? Uh, one of them shows Lori Lightfoot with seventeen percent. The other one shows her with sixteen percent. Willie Wilson trailing by by about three percentage points in both of them, and then Paul Vallis about another three percentage points behind. Brandon Johnson. I, I, in, in fourth. I don't know if they did they did they offer it to Spanish speaking people. Was it in Spanish? In, which, if it wasn't, then that means you know, then it's kind of flawed because Chewy would have had higher yeah, I mean, numbers. Yeah, Chewy's at at six percent, right? I mean, it's at six or seven percent, uh, about half of where Lori Lori Lightfoot is, Mayor, incumbent Mayor Lori Lightfoot is, and and that just doesn't make sense to me right now, although I, I, the more I talk to people about this race, the more I'm, I'm feeling people are not, they're not really feeling Chewy yet, that he hasn't been all that dynamic in the debates, and I'm sure you watch those debates and, and uh, um, have a sense of how, how people are doing, um, but I've ta- I talk to a lot of people, I'm not nearly as many as you do, I'm sure, who just feel like they're not sure where they're going with this. With this, as, as a voter, they're just like they're not happy with Lori Lightfoot, but they're not that happy with the with the challengers. And and uh, you know they, they like a lot of what Paul Vallis has to say, but they're also really really uneasy with some of the things in Paul Vallis's past, his in, his uh, embrace of of, uh, of charter schools and privatization and so on. So I feel I feel like this race is very very fluid. It is absolutely fluid, and I think. I, I do think uh, Chewy Garcia is probably doing better because he does have such name recognition, but we don't know. I do think the polls out there are not uh, – I, I don't know that they're going into black communities or Latino communities the way they should be to get a sense of how people are voting. So if you're only going to white people, you know, then th- that means those polls are all skewed. So. Um, 
they're supposed to be. I mean, they, well, there was the and the other thing that you reported on, which I hadn't also hadn't seen. And this is why listeners, you need to subscribe to Illinois Playbook because it's going to tell you things that even those of us who think we are nerds and know everything that don't know until we read it in the Illinois Playbook. Um, that the Harris, there's been a Harris poll out that you reported on, and and. Uh, and it shows an enormous amount of dissatisfaction with mayor life. But three quarters of those, I'm reading from the playbook now, uh, of those who plan to vote in the upcoming mayoral election, 74% agree that Chicago would be better off with a different mayor. Seven, three out of four. They also said 45% didn't even know who they were going to vote for because they didn't know the challengers were up to snuff either. Right. And the other interesting the interesting fact here was 95% of those who plan to vote uh, consider public safety in Chicago to be personally important, and 82% consider it very important. Uh, that suggests that someone like Paul Vallis is going to have more traction than perhaps these polls are showing. Maybe, though I've been to two events this week um, where... Uh, it's all. It, they were both focused on public safety, and and people are very encouraged in the West and South Side communities that the numbers of shootings and homicides are going down. Uh, now, North Side might not feel the same way, even though those numbers are less. But because they are not used to seeing shootings there or homicides, that the North Side is a little more freaked out. Um, and they vote. So the question will be whether I think the South and West side folks, if they do feel like things are getting better, if they go out and vote. Yeah, well, clearly nobody knows what's going to happen. And it's and we've got three weeks roughly until this election. And uh, I got to say that the best way to follow what's going on and figure, if you, if you want to try to figure it out is to subscribe to Illinois Playbook written by my guest this hour, Shia Kapos. Thanks for so much of your time, Shia. Uh, this has been really interesting. And I will look forward to reading you tomorrow and every day between now and the election and beyond. So thanks very much. It's a pleasure. Good talking to you. This is Eric Zorn. I'm sitting in for Joan Esposito, and we will be back after a few words in the news to talk to Patrick Finkston of the Illinois. There's new information. Explosive new information. It's how every day starts. Need for information. Get the info you need from Santita Jackson. Weekday morning starting at 6 on WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT. 820. Once again, it's not Joan Esposito. They got to tell that announcer that it's not Joan. She's not here. She's not going to be back till Monday. It's is Eric Zorn. I write the Picky and Sentinel newsletter. I used to write for the Tribune, if you recognize my name. Um, Tori Ryder will be sitting in tomorrow in this uh, in this uh, chair, the Joan Esposito commemorative chair. Uh, and right now I have uh, with me Patrick Finkston, who writes the Illinois, uh, another Substack newsletter. He's a, a, a brother in Substacking. Patrick, how are you? It, it's really like a, a fraternity. It you know, is. We have a handshake and everything. There is a secret handshake. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wanted to have you on, and thanks for thanks for jumping on. I, I just want to talk about what's going on it, it, from your perspective uh, in Illinois. Now, you have some roots as a Republican uh consultant and uh so you might be able to to uh, reflect a little bit about about what's going on both uh, you know pretty much in illinois but but i know you've got uh you've got views about what happens what happens nationally so it just uh, first of all 
let's tell the listeners a little bit about what the Illinois is and just how it got started and how long you've been writing it. Yeah, so the Illinois, uh, theillinois.com, I-L-L-I-N-O-I-Z-E.com. It's yeah. a daily newsletter Spell that we put it correctly, out. Uh, right. yep put out uh, through Substack, uh, which, which of course, you know well, that uh, basically it's just uh, reporting and, and commentary and insight on what's going on in, in state government and state politics. It's uh, it, it boils down to uh, my experience both as a reporter and in the political world. Uh, I was a reporter downstate for, for seven years and then before I jumped into politics for about a decade and after the 2020 primary when the the world shut down and the party that I used to work for lost its mind. Uh, I, uh, I I took a step back and, and said, what can I do to help change the narrative and, and, and help people understand what's actually going on in the world? And that's what led me to, to start a newsletter. And, and before that, you had been working in in consulting. What, what, how would you describe what you had, your your employment had been before that? Yeah, so I left journalism in twenty early twenty eleven. Um, worked in the the state house, uh, a couple of uh, uh, state senate campaign in twenty twelve, a congressional campaign in twenty twelve. Uh, we actually moved to uh, to Indiana for a couple of years, uh, and eventually went out uh, on my own uh, doing campaign work and 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 consulting and uh, PR work as well. And uh, that that kind of led me up until the uh, the. 2020 election when I worked a congressional primary in Southern Illinois, and uh, and and yeah, just kind of uh, sat back after that and, and said, "What the heck am I doing with my life?" Well, to talk about what as because you're still a reporter, you're still a journalist, and this is a, this is a, a, a serious journalistic effort that you've got going here. To, to be fair, to be fair, I don't call myself a reporter because I do some opinion work. I've done political work in the background, so I I, I make it clear that I'm not a Reporter. Okay, uh, you know, I, I just 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 I, so that you know, because I know people. There's some people out there. Well, you're just a Republican hack, and and I'm, I'm I really I try to be honest with the fact of I do have perspective, I do have background, uh, but but yeah, I mean, I do some journalistic work as part of it. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, and, and of course, I, I you know, I think you you know, I've spoken before, and I I don't. I mean, I, we don't come at every issue the same way, but I, I certainly don't consider you a hack, and and I also don't think that it. Well, I, I guess maybe reporter is the wrong is the is a misleading term, uh, but you're you're a journalist. I mean, you you approach your topics on the Illinois with a journalist's eye for relaying truthful information. I should say. I mean, and, and I mean, in some ways, that is because journalism is a broad term to use. Um, sure. Um, and I'm sure. sure you draw on what, a lot. What, of- what I always tell people is, our friend Rick Pearson is is a reporter. You know, he doesn't do opinion work. He doesn't do analysis of things. He reports the news. I, that I do more than just that. Is, yeah, is essentially what I'm saying. I, I find I, I, uh, I, of course, we both know Rick, and and uh, I'm amazed that he is able to. I mean, because I know he has opinions, um, and I've certainly heard them, but I sure. have not seen them in print. And I don't think he, he was pretty careful about what he said when he had a radio show. If you remember, he had a he oh, had yeah. that great radio show on WGN on Sunday mornings uh, for a long time. And uh, as someone who is uh, who's steeped in this kind of stuff, I find it hard. I would find it hard not to have feelings about it and express those feelings and, and, and try to advance the conversation in that direction rather than, you know, he said, she said. But uh, uh, I mean, there's clearly a, a good place for that. And I, I really respect those like like 
Rick and, and of course, Ray Long and people like that who are mm-hmm. who are able to do that without letting their opinions sh- show through. But but uh, so you start you started the Illinois, and uh, I, I'm I'm sort of curious about what you think the state of the Illinois Republican Party is right now. How do you how do you analyze what's what's going on there? What what's the future look like? Have you seen the gif of the the dumpster on fire? Uh, that's essentially the Illinois Republican Party today. It, it, it is um, it, it is in the midst of its own cannibalistic civil war, where uh, the right uh, thinks that they are right. Uh, they they think that they're the path forward when they can't read the numbers that show that they lost. You know, Darren Bailey lost DuPage County by 52,000 votes in in November. No Republican – Bruce Rauner lost DuPage County by a handful of votes in 2018. Before that, no Republican had ever lost DuPage County. Uh, they The Republicans are scaring away suburban voters in droves and, and downstate conservatives. And I'm a downstater originally. You know, I, I grew up a couple of hours south of the city, about an hour north of Champaign. Uh, downstaters do not understand that you have to nominate candidates that can appeal to a wide swath of people in the suburbs and a few in the city and downstate, and they, they're continually getting their clocks cleaned. Well, so what, do you think like a Richard Irvin would have been a success? Would he have been successful running against J.B. Pritzker or was, was any Republican going to beat J.B. Pritzker last time? Richard Irvin was a bad example because Richard Irvin ran a terrible campaign. Uh, first of all, Richard Irvin was was um, being advised by some pretty terrible people. Uh, secondly, he had absolutely no public positions, no conservative bona fides to actually win a primary. They they tried to run that primary on I'm the tough guy that's going to clean up crime when that wasn't the number one issue for Republican primary voters. And and three, he wasn't a Republican in the first place. You know, he had voted in five of six Democratic primaries. You you don't nominate a Democrat to be a Republican nominee. Can you imagine Democrats nominating somebody who I don't know uh, who's I can't even think of a, uh, a a Democrat turned Republican. You know, but well, Paul Paul Vallis is um, kind of a Democrat turned Republican. If you're you know following the Chicago mayor's yeah, race, I mean, um, yeah, and and I and first of all. As a former political PR guy, do not go talk to Jeff Berkowitz ever. Uh, he's he's like campaign fodder for your opponents because uh, that I mean he sunk Mike Burke in the the general election by trying to pose some silly questions. Well, too. just so, just to just to let people know who Jeff Berkowitz is, Jeff uh, runs a uh, has a cable TV talk show. Um, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Uh, Public Affairs. Public Affairs, that's right, of course. Uh, and uh, he brings candidates on. He had a number of interviews with Barack Obama early, early in, in Barack's career. Then he gets people who, uh, who are um, up and coming who want some exposure. And he asks some pretty tough questions uh, and uh, tendentious questions, very argumentative questions. And he gets them to stake out positions at times or say things or not answer things that uh, end up coming back to bite them. So and he's uh, yeah, Jeff is uh, Jeff's tenacious. And uh, so, yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll make a note of that. But uh, uh so, so, so no, the, the, the short answer to your question, yeah. I don't think Richard Irvin would have won. 
but but had Ken Griffin backed his Brinks truck up to uh, a a more widely acceptable candidate, you know, somebody like Kirk Dillard comes to mind, um, who's a, a, a a Republican, but doesn't scare away moderates and, and doesn't scare away downstaters uh, and probably would have won the nomination in 2014 had they had another like week because he was closing in pretty hard on Rauner. Um, you know, maybe that would have been a different narrative. But again, you know, J.B. Pritzker would have spent 70 million or 80 million to nominate a crazy instead of, you know, instead of just letting someone who could beat him win that primary. Yeah, I, I'm just. I was wondering though. Did did, did um, Rauner really blow the chance to become the? Uh, is it Charlie Baker? Is that that's the governor of Massachusetts, right? Uh, yeah, now former governor. Former governor just, of Massachusetts. He, he, yeah. he was. Uh, in, uh, th- those of you who don't follow Massachusetts politics, he was a Republican governor in in a, in a basically a blue state. I mean, it's uh, you know, oh, it's sure. Romney well, it's, and it's Bill Weld state. and people like that are uh, have uh, one office statewide in Massachusetts. But he, he but he was, the, I think, the most popular governor in the country at one point in in Massachusetts. A Republican, he was able to play his uh, fiscally conservative, socially moderate views uh, in a way that just really appealed to a lot of people. I had a friend the other day who lives in Massachusetts. He and I were together, and he was saying that that, that he voted for him. And he's a sure. very progressive Democratic guy. He says, you know, I like the guy. I like the cut of his jib. I like the way he ran. And, and I thought Rauner had a chance to be that guy. And he just yeah. fumbled it away. The, well, the difference there is that Charlie Baker knew how to govern. Um, you know, he worked for Bill Weld. Um, he was the state secretary of, I think, their health and human services. And I think he ran their um, like their state finance department, essentially. Uh, I, I don't remember the exact terms for the, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts state government. Pardon me on that. But uh, he had governing experience. He knew how to do the job when he took office. Bruce Rauner clearly showed that he had no idea how to be governor. Um, and and then he surrounded himself with combative people, and all he wanted to do was pick fights with Mike Madigan instead of be the deal maker that we thought he would be uh, as as a guy in business. And and it led to this unthinkable collapse of state government. And and you know he he went down that path. You know you you can't run you can't get anything done in Springfield by lighting your opponents on fire. Especially if you're a Republican with Democratic supermajorities in the legislature. Instead of being a guy like Jim Edgar who built bridges, uh, Rauner lit them all on fire. You know, it didn't even light them on fire, stuck C4 under them and blew them up. You know, <laughs> and, and, that, and, and, and that got him nowhere. Yeah, I mean, he kept, I can't think he kept thinking that he was going to turn the populace against Madigan. And that, of course, that's been an effort that the Republican Party in Illinois has been trying for years. The Fire Madigan movement has been or was going on for a long time. And, of course, they had a point that Madigan was in, it, you know, not to convict a man before he has his fair trial. But but uh, Madigan was a very problematic figure, but uh, they were unable to, to do it. You, you know, you mentioned Jim Edgar. You mentioned Kirk Dillard. I'm thinking Jim Durkin. These these uh, I don't know what the term would be in 
Indoor Republicans or something like that. These these moderate Republicans. They're moderate. It's, uh, safe, it's safe to call them moderate. Yeah. I uh, mean, uh, Dillard's Dillard's maybe more of a mainstream Republican than a, a, a an Edgar, but yeah, I mean, they're definitely more on the governing wing or the the moderate wing. Of yeah, the I mean, party. you know, in the tradition, and I know George Ryan was uh, in some ways more governing socially conservative. Sure, yeah. Governing wing, so people who knew how to get things done. And you look at, at most of the Republicans who have won statewide office; they tend to be, you know, in the in the Judy Topinka mold. Mm-hmm. And and those people are on the mark. I mean, even, even like Charlie Baker is. The, no one says, "Oh, Charlie Baker should run for president." Uh, that that uh, that those kinds of Republicans aren't getting any purchase with the. Well, Charlie Baker would probably be a fantastic president. Oh yeah, had he been a guy that could ever win a nomination. You know, but that's that's the problem with the the primary system. I mean, you know, we, you know, I think Joe Biden is maybe the only is maybe the last remnant of of maybe the old school governing uh, kind of of center left or center right candidate. And, and Biden hasn't even governed center left. He's governed to the left. He's he governed campaigned by- center left. Hey, can we get about 10 more minutes with you after the break? Sure. And you, I know you've got to go host your own radio show after this, right? I'm, like, I'm filling in on a station in Springfield, literally starting at four. So okay, so we'll, we'll, let you go, I'll let you go in like about 10 minutes from now. Sure, and uh, we, i got to take a short break now to uh, pay some bills here. And uh, we'll be right back. This is Eric Zorn. Uh, I'm with uh, the, uh, the Picayune Sentinel. I'm sitting in for Jonas Mazzito. We're talking to Patrick Fingston of the Illinois with a Z in it. And uh, we'll spell that for you after the break. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This is Eric Zorn. I'm sitting in for Joan today. Uh, Tori Ryder will be sitting in for Joan tomorrow, and Joan will be back on Monday. Uh, I'm talking with Patrick Fingston. He is the uh, proprietor, the author of The Illinois, uh, which is a, uh, a Substack newsletter that covers uh, state politics. And Patrick, will you spell that for people just so that uh, they uh, can find it? Yeah, the Illinois, I-L-L-I-N-O-I-Z-E dot com. You can subscribe to the newsletter uh, up on the top right of the page where it says subscribe. Just click the free one and you get our stuff every day. Illinois with a Z. Remember that. Uh, so you don't uh, find some imitation, some uh, knockoff brand of uh, Substack. Anyway, we're talking about, about uh, the... Jim Durkin, Jim Edgar, wing of the Republican Party, uh, the the moderates, and and the fact that they seem to be out in the wilderness right now. How does the Illinois Republican Party come back from this? How do they? they, they the, the Democrats have super majorities. They've controlled the maps, and despite all the finger wagging the, from the editorial boards, the Democrats are not going to give up control of the political maps to some uh, independent commission anytime soon. So, Which I think we should also mention was a complete flip-flop from J.B. Pritzker in, in, from his first campaign. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, totally. This is what people say to get elected. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm all for neutrally drawn political maps, but only if we do it nationally and all the, both parties disarm. Because, I I, you know, if the, if the Democrats disarm unilaterally in, in Illinois – to set a good example, they're just going to do what happened in New York, where the uh, Democrats in New York ended up getting beaten at a bunch of places where they, if they had drawn their maps with more cynicism, they could have probably could have won. But how does it, how does the how does the Republican Party come back, uh, or will they come back? 
I don't know. Um, that's a. I know that. I mean, it's a talk show, so you like you know declarative hot take <laughs> answers. But I, 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 I can the Republican Party come back? Yes, of course. Hey, of course uh, they will, right? I mean, there's, there's a t- will the Republican Party come back? I don't know. I don't know that it will in its current um, in its current iteration. I mean, we we have to. I mean. You know, you're you're obviously you know in the the city and suburbs and in that neck of the woods. What what the Republican Party is downstate, the the people who vote in Republican primaries, it's Trump country, man. It's Kentucky. It's Missouri. It's Indiana. You know, it's it's not like voters in in the Chicago suburbs. You know, so what kind of Republican candidate? You know, if you're looking in. You know, now if you're there are no statewide elections in 2024. So 2026, you know, assuming J.B. Pritzker doesn't run for a third term in 2026, because why would he want the job for three terms? Um, He what you know, first of all, you have a wide open dogfight for the, the gubernatorial nomination among Democrats. So Republicans then have the ability to coalesce around a a centrist governing conservative without being scary nominee. The problem is those are few and far between at this point. A guy like Adam Kinzinger would have fit that mold two years ago, but, but now he's toxic because of his anti-Trump positions. A guy like Rodney Davis would have been that guy in, in 2022 potentially, but he got beat in a primary because he wasn't Trumpy enough. You know, Kirk Dillard lost a primary in 2014 because he didn't have Bruce Rauner's money. So who what Republican out there? You know, I, I, Jason Barrickman, who's a friend of mine and, and was in the state Senate for 10 years, just quit the Senate because he can't get anything done. So so what what the, all the good ones are going away? Yeah, I was, and, I, and, and yeah. we're electing bad ones and, and the ones in tight races are getting killed. Yeah, I was kind of hoping that that Kinzinger would run for governor, and uh, obviously, you know, he, he wouldn't have won, but uh, he wouldn't have won made it through the primary. But I think if he had made it through the primary, I think there is an appetite for a, a Kinzinger-style Republican in a state like Illinois. I think that he could have given Pritzker a really good run because, and I disagree with with uh, with him on a number of issues, of course, but I respect. Adam Kinzinger a great deal. I respect his integrity. I, I respect that he, you know he and I may differ on, on some things, but that but that he is a, a person of, of honor and integrity. And if and when you don't have that, I mean that that it should be like the you, the basic requirement for a, a a political office holder. And I think that he could have had a lot of Democrats crossing over to vote for him just uh, for change purposes for the fact that he he is an admirable fellow. But you're right. I don't, I don't know where that where that comes from. Now, of course, the thing is that. You could probably ask the same thing about the Democratic Party in a number of these states that are controlled exclusively by Republicans. Like, will the Democratic Party ever come back? And it, it, it seems like we're really – we have this this sorting going on, this great sort of political sorting where people are, are moving to places and living in places where the parties are just becoming entrenched. And it may be that the, the Republican Party in Illinois is, is in the wilderness for for generations, just like the Democratic Party is, is in the wilderness for generations in like South Carolina in Indiana. or yeah. Indiana. Right. Uh, and it may just be that's that's where it is. And, and, and that people who are thinking about where they're going to go, uh, go to school, where they're going to take jobs and so on, that the country is going to just continue to, to polarize and pull apart well, um, for for every for every Republican that 
can't speak to suburban voters. Uh, there is a Democrat who can't speak to rural voters. Uh, and and to plug my own podcast, which you know, go to YouTube or whatever your podcast app is and search for the Illinois. I, I talked to a former uh, Southern Illinois congressman yesterday, Bill Enyart, who who was basically the last Republican or last Democrat to hold a fully Southern Illinois seat, and and you know, it was just a matter of uh, you know the Democratic platform has become very urban and suburban and and a lot of these social issues these these uh fights between uh you know fights on on abortion and immigration et cetera et cetera uh downstaters in illinois or rural folks in in indiana or south carolina wherever you want to say uh just feel completely forgotten by uh the party that's that's led by by dc democrats or chicago democrats yeah, this is, uh, there's so much more to talk about. I promised I would let you go with five minutes to go. For, you've got to do your own radio show down in Springfield. This, is, this has been uh, Patrick Finkston of the Illinois with a Z. Uh, be sure to subscribe to his Substack. It's uh, very informative. You're following state government, state politics, uh, and you want a little bit of a different perspective. It's a great read, and I really appreciate you jumping on with me today, Patrick. Thank you, and good luck Eric, with your— Eric, my friend, a pleasure. Good luck with your show today. <laughs> We'll do our best. All right. Thanks. This is Eric Zorn. I'm sitting in uh, for Joan Esposito. And uh, we have a caller who's been on the who's been on hold for more than an hour. We'll talk about the Chicago mayor's race. Is he even still there? <laughs> what is he? I'm, uh, Phil, are you there? Is Phil there? No. Yes. Is yeah, I'm still here. Um, I'm sorry to keep Hello. you on hold for so long. I just saw you up there on the screen. So the mayor's race. What's your analysis? Uh Eric, I'm right there with you. Uh, when I heard your intro, that's why I had to call. <laughs> it's like this guy nailed it, man. Um, I don't like Willie Wilson. I would never vote for him. There are uh, quite a few issues. First off, I'd like to say he is a nice man. He's a generous man, um, and my heart goes out to him. I think he's very sincere, genuine um, regarding his son. Yeah, I mean, how could you not be in sincere about that but you know his son was murdered and the, the crime issue uh, crime in chicago is a huge issue i i do understand that um but he just uh he reeks uh, uh, uh first off he voted trump in 2016 i mean come on dude you know I'm, i i mean and he's unrepentant <laughs> he's like you know, very matter-of-factly, uh, unapologetic. You know, I don't want anybody that gullible running Chicago. I'll say it straight out. You know, that that he lost me there. Yeah, um, I didn't know. About- yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I just I don't get the sense that Willie Wilson has a great deal of depth to his policy prescriptions. Uh, I, I mean, he has a sort of like no no new taxes and hunt the bad guys down like rabbits. It seems crime, to be crime, 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 scare attack that just just like Trump and the Republicans, it really comes off that way. To right. me. And it, he's taking a very serious issue and kind of, you know, um, I, you know, I, 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 I don't want to say marginalizing. He's, he's making it sound silly almost. It, it's but that, to me, it comes off as a very. Trumpian. So, you know, Phil, like you said, yeah. So, Phil, where you where you leaning here? Where are you leaning on this on this race? Yeah, I, I and I hate to say it, but um, 
you know, I listened to Joan in the, in the debates between their contenders uh, last week. Uh, I, I, Lori Lightfoot sounds the best to me. I am very disappointed with her. Uh, her ego, she has these idiosyncrasies. I don't know why she has to diss people. Um, she just can't seem to work with people. She has very good ideas. It, it, she, it just seems like she's held back from implementing them. Yeah, I don't know right. about you. I, I was I was an enthusiastic supporter of hers uh, four years ago. I, I voted for her both times, and uh, and I, and I do. And you know, I I've spoken to her several times. I I like her. She's extremely smart, uh, and I think she's she's extremely well meaning. Her political instincts. Uh, are lacking, but I, I, I'm hearing what I'm hearing from you. I'm hearing from some other people, which is like they don't care for the way Lightfoot has run things, but they're they they they're not sold in any of the other challengers. Um, people are saying that Sophia King, who I think pr- projects very well, uh, is someone to, to to keep an eye on. So uh, I don't know if she if it's too late for her to get some traction and get moving. But uh, I, I did like her presentation on the debate the other night. Did you watch that? I, I haven't caught her. I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to get a little caught up here. Yeah. Anyway, hey Phil, thanks a lot for the call. We got to take a break here. Uh, this is WCPT AM eight twenty. I'm Eric Zorn. I'm sitting in for Joan Esposito, who will be back on Monday and tomorrow. Tory Ryder will be here, so that you have that to look forward to. We'll take a short break and be back. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hochberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive on WCPT 820. Well, it's not Joan Esposito. It's Eric Zorn. I'm sitting in for Joan today. I write the Picayune Sentinel Substack newsletter. You may remember me from the Tribune where I worked for 41 years before I left a couple of years ago, early 21. And um, Tori Ryder will be sitting in tomorrow, and then Joan will be back on Monday. And uh, I just also wanted to remind people, I said this at the top of the show a couple hours ago, uh, people were asking why I'm not on every week now with Joan. I used to be on every, every Thursday at 4.30. Is Joan mad at me? Uh, no, Joan and I are still are still good. Um, I just have a lot of stuff going on. And on Thursday afternoons, I was having to work my way around them. And I said, let's just do this on an ad hoc basis when there's something you want to talk about. And so Joan and I are cool, and I'm really happy to be sitting in for her, and I'm really happy to be joining by uh, Douglas Fraser, who is the executive director of Chicago Health Initiative. Uh, and uh, I will talk, we'll talk a little bit about what the Health Initiative is. Um, and I thought that this uh, 20 below zero wind chill uh, has got to put us in mind of people who are, who are unhoused and the, the problems that they experience in weather like this. And I know Chicago Health Initiative helps that. I uh, also want to say right up front that uh, Doug Fraser and I are, are very good friends, and uh, this uh, I wanted to have him on primarily because we uh, were having dinner the other night, and this conversation veered into talking about housing issues in Chicago, and uh, Doug had a lot to say about that, and I thought, well, th- this conversation should should be going wider than uh, just this tape.
table. So, Doug, how are you doing? Nice to just nice to. I, I, I'm well. I, I think maybe I'll watch my mouth when I'm at dinner. <laughs> so I was like, I'm roped into <laughs> roped into talking on the radio. Um, Chicago yeah, yeah. Chicago Help Initiative um, is a consortium of business, residential, religious, social service, institutional, and volunteer leaders striving to promote an atmosphere of dignity and compassion toward those in need by providing access to food, health services, shelter, and employment. Uh, I'm reading off your website there. So, so uh, what else do we want to know about the Chicago Help Initiative? I think uh, that we're focused, we really focus on three things, uh, which is bringing guys in. Uh, it's mostly men, about 85% uh, at any one of our meals. About half of them are homeless, half of them, half of them are transitioning in and out. And we do a couple of things, connect them to resources uh, and put them into peer groups, uh, groups like yoga, book club, uh, a whole series of things to draw people into situations in which they connect with other people. Uh, and the reason is simple, that you need relationships to get to, to move forward in life. You need relationships, you need friends, and you need resources. The other thing is that we uh, actually work on social service delivery in six churches around the city, uh, and that is we train volunteers there to at community meals that they have to do some of the basic things homeless need to move forward, uh, like apply on housing lists, get emails, get phones, uh whole bunch of things that uh, get Medicaid, get SNAP, teaching people to help out within their own communities to bring those resources to the people, their neighbors around them who need them, and to serve people in different parts of the city where they choose to live and where they choose to eat and connect to the resources there, rather than making them move around. That's kind of the summary. So I'm I'm talking about... 20 degrees below zero, and there are yeah. people who, uh, in, in our neighborhood, we live on the northwest side, two blocks from you, and uh, you see people living in tents uh, under the viaducts, uh, yep. and they can do that when the weather's like it is right now, the temperature in the 30s, maybe in the 20s, but when the wind chills are that low, uh, right. where, do, where do they go? Are there enough shelter beds, or what's going, what's, what is going on with the shelter bed no, situation? No, they're, they're, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And uh, I'll give my uh, tirade on it. In 2015, we had about 5,200 shelter beds in Chicago. Today, and I had a conversation with some city folks on Monday, we have about 2,900, meaning we've lost about 40% of the beds. And the beds have gone for two reasons. One is COVID, right? So you had to space things out. You couldn't fit as many people close together. That's one part of it. But this decline began before COVID. It began because the city shifted to a policy of funding supportive housing, uh, which is a, in theory is a good idea, but not shelters. So there was some natural attrition. There were some uh, who just went out of business and they were not replaced. The problem is we didn't build enough housing to pick up that slack. And now we're in a rough spot, which is we actually have more homeless now than we did last year in the last two years. If you look at what's called the HMIS, which is the Homeless Management Information System, you have about uh, between 15 to 20 percent increase in the number of people asking the city for help uh, than we did last year at this time. It's, this is a national phenomenon. It's not just Chicago. And we have fewer places to put them than we have had in decades. And consequently, there's a couple other things going on, too, but consequently, that's why you're seeing so many people in emergency rooms on the CTA uh, and in those tents, because they have literally nowhere to go. 
If you go back a couple of years, there was only about six to eight nights a year got really cold when those shelter beds filled up back around when you had about 5,000 beds. Now they're full every night. And anybody entering into crisis, somebody getting in trouble, getting outside, having to leave a place, has nowhere to go. Tell me about this decision that you said that the city made. They were, they were going to reprioritize or not going to fund the shelters. They're going to f- fund housing initiatives. You're saying they were going to, they were going to build, uh, but, they, but there must have been, I mean, you, you would think they would have planned that out carefully to do that so that the resources would remain in place. Right. You would think that you would have kept that, uh, I, I want to call it surplus or maybe slack in the system, if I can use that word, so that you were accommodating everybody who was outside and wanted to come in on that into those shelter beds and still had a little bit to deal with some surges or some issues that might come up. But we didn't. And now we're in a position where literally we just don't have enough beds. And there are more people than that want those beds than can get beds. And that's, and that's why you're seeing this mess. It is also worth noting uh, that the, there's been an influx, the asylum seekers, into the city. You know, the vast majority of them are being uh, housed within about, I think it's 12 different sites that the city has developed. And it's probably four to 5,000. I don't know the exact number. But there is some overflow that affects the shelter system. So I've talked to some of the shelter providers, and on, and on some given nights, they've had as much as 20% of their beds taken up by people who are coming into the city. Now, we have to we have to house both sets of people. Not, we'll house or at least shelter or care for. We can't have anybody sleeping on the street in Chicago in this weather, and yet we do. Now, what is it you said? I think there are about 500, 500 of these people who have been bussed up here. From the from the border is that 5, is that five thousand? Okay, that would explain. I was thinking five hundred. They ought to be able to absorb five hundred, but five thousand. Five hundred, we got five thousand. Not so much. Uh, yeah. And they've and been it, putting them up. There's there's this controversy about putting them up in a school, uh, and yeah. we just need places for them. Is is uh, what other factors are playing into this 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 rise? You say you're seeing it all over the country. Are we seeing? Um, uh, are we? Is it is opioid addiction? Uh, the uh, I mean, unemployment is not that. I'm gonna, no, I'm going to suggest a much simpler answer. And and you know, opioids, mental health, and some of these things that seem to hit the news, they're going to have an effect, no doubt. But the bottom line is the the cost of housing of renting has gone up by about 14 percent in the city in the last year. And it's and this is not unique to Chicago. The biggest increases have been on the south and the west side, which means in many cases those communities less able to handle that increase are getting the highest proportional increases. So what happens? It's it's the same story that it's that it's always been. It's those people who are lower down on the economic and the security ladder are pushed off. Uh, you got more families under stress more difficult times for more people, and that shows up at, in more people being out on the street. That's that's the bottom line. It's housing costs. And so, and, and let me make let me make this argument that the most common way that people get off the street is I, I wish it was organizations like mine or other social service organizations, but it isn't. It's their families. It's their aunts. It's their cousins. It's their grandmas who reach out and allow them to come back. But if they're already stressed, if they're already overburdened, if they're already you know overcrowded, then they can't. 
Let's talk some more about solutions. I need to take a short commercial break here. And then with talking with Doug Fraser, who's the, uh, Fraser, who's the executive director of the uh, Chicago Health Initiative, we're talking about housing, cold weather, uh, the crisis in, in homelessness in Chicago right now, the reason you're seeing all these people on the uh, sleeping under viaducts and sleeping on the L and, and so on. And uh, I'm Eric Zorn sitting in for Joan Esposito, and we'll be back right after these. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This is Eric Zorn. I'm sitting in for Joan Esposito, who will be back on Monday. Tori Ryder will be with you tomorrow. And I'm talking with Doug Fraser, who is the uh, executive director of the Chicago Help Initiative. And we started our conversation talking about how the fact that since 2015, the number of shelter beds has dropped by 40% in Chicago, 5,200 shelter beds for the for the homeless down to 2900 and we're facing a, a bitterly cold weekend and we've got this large problem this it's a housing crisis essentially what it is um that's exacerbated by some other factors and uh doug before the break you were saying that that family tends to be the answer to this problem that's but right. that families are, are are stressed themselves so that they're not able to provide the help that they used to provide yeah, so it, and that means more people uh, ending up on the street and a slower time getting back uh, into a stable situation. It's it, the the reality is it's it's not necessarily some of the government efforts or efforts of organizations like ours, but the efforts of family, friends, and others who make the most dent in this issue. Do you do you feel in your organization that you're um, bailing water out of a, a, a leaking boat? <laughs> There's a there's a feeling like uh, somewhat of that, Eric. You know, we do what we can, but I think the hardest part is we do community meals, and then people will come into those meals thinking they're going to get help in terms of getting a, a place to stay that night, and they'll ask the question, "Where can I go? What can I do?" And in the Chicago system, you got to go through three one one. Three one one doesn't show. It's a huge issue. They're overwhelmed. They're overburdened. They can't pick up everyone who calls. So you, you can't just refer them directly to shelters anymore. They got to go through the three one one system, and the three one one system is broken. So, again, let, let me clarify this. To, yeah. so, so, someone comes into you and says, I, "I'm in crisis. I don't have a place to stay. I've got the clothes on my back and in my knapsack here." And you yeah. say, "And you say the the only way to access this is to call three one one." And three one one says, "All the shelter beds are full. There twenty nine hundred shelter beds, right?" Is what you said. Yeah. And they're all full. We can't. They, they, do they not try to help, or do they just don't show up? How do, it, it, they just don't show up. Here's what happens: uh, when the shelter, the, the I'm going to back up a second. There isn't a community meal provider I know who uses three one one. I understand that that's what they tell you to do, but that's not what works. The three one one system of the numbers that we have pulled, speaking about how how efficient they are. And this is going to, I got to preface this by saying these are cruddy numbers so that the numbers that have been released don't guide you into what is happening. They just illustrate a problem. Uh, and the numbers of when people call and when they get picked up, say that there's a 12 hour lag. That is the average wait is 12 hours. And I know that sounds insane, except I can refer you to emergency rooms and other locations that have called and the 311 has arrived 
days later, not hours later, but days later to pick people up. In one instance, a family was picked up from an emergency room three days after the phone call. It's nuts. They're absolutely overwhelmed and it isn't working. Which means if someone comes into a meal and says, I need to get into a shelter, we send them either to a police station to sleep, the emergency room to sleep, and some instances, providers give them passes to the CTA. It's nuts. They give them passes to the CTA. So the people you see on the trains who are sleeping are often there because shelter providers, organizations, you know, they're there to help people say this is your only option. That we have to, we, you, yeah. that, the, the, that the train may not be all that safe or quiet or comfortable and there's no bathroom facilities, but this is the best you can do to stay warm in yeah. this weather. That's the best they can do. Yeah, get on the blue line or the red line in the morning and look at the number of people sleeping there. Well, I just thought those people, I mean, my, my sense was that those people were, were uh, they're of their own complete volition. That was their idea to be there. But you're saying this is, this is people who know what they're doing are saying this is the best place for you to go. Now, so when 311 does. one of the options that we are left with when there is no way to get inside and sleep. And do police stations allow them to sleep there? Like, uh, do they put them in the yeah, cell? Actually, like in. Uh... Inter- no, there are police stations that have set aside floors. For people to sleep on and you know for being homeless is not exactly the safest thing in the world and for those people who want that option that's what they do they sleep on the floor do they have bedrolls with them does the do the police provide bedrolls or or cots or you know, anything i don't know i don't know the answer i i do know uh that we've had folks going into the police stations to see what's going on and seeing that there were folks sleeping there i don't recall asking what they were sleeping on I'm just wondering whether the, whether the police are, are trying to work with people to try to, to solve this problem because I mean, and and I you know many years ago I covered the, the homeless situation in Chicago and there were a number of, of shelters but that and that safety in the shelters was a huge issue and there's a, a number of people who didn't right. want to go to the shelters they wanted they, because they couldn't keep their belongings safe and I'm sure right. that's still the case um, you've yeah. had these these uh, and at the time. We did not have, this was in the 80s, so I go way back, but uh, we did not have these tent encampments that you see now. Um, sure. These great tent communities where they where they uh, they often they seem to look out for one another and and uh, and help each other out. But but even still, so so when three one one, it sounds like you're you're not pointing the finger at the three one one system particularly. No. You're saying that the people there are completely overwhelmed by this. They don't know they don't know They're what to overwhelmed. do. There's there are too many calls and no place to put people. And do people like you reach out to the, to the three one one people and say, you know, let's no. can we work out, or that just is that pointless? It's, it it hasn't. There have been a series of conversations over time trying to get at this issue, and it hasn't moved. And it's you know whether it's timing, whether it's the moment, whether it's what the priorities are. Uh, it, and it's not a new thing. Three one one has been challenged for years. Uh, but it's only, I would say, I've really only felt it, it's completely overwhelmed this year. It's, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a belief that that system works and it doesn't work. And all you got to do is look around and see the number of people outside to realize what's going on. Are any of the mayoral candidates talking about this in a constructive way? I haven't heard any. 
Is this? I, I haven't like like a lot of people. I think maybe I didn't put enough attention onto the elections at this point, but I haven't heard anyone coming forward with either short-term or long-term solutions. What is the estimate for the number of, of homeless people we have in Chicago? <laughs> well, depends on who's estimating. So one of the things to look at, so it, it ranges anywhere from, you know, uh, 8,000 to 65,000, depending on who's counting and how they're counting. Here's probably the way to, in, you, you can get a good indication of where we're going, and you will shortly, by what's called the pit count, point in time count, which is every year people go out and count the number of people that are in a set series of locations and in shelters. And that just happened last week for January. Uh, so you'll know fairly soon. And, and that doesn't give you any absolute number, because all you got to do is think about this. You're going to get a good sense of who's in the shelters. But if you're homeless and alone, you're going to be hidden. You're not going to be sleeping out where people can find you. So that means there are always more people out there than are counted. It just gives you an indication of whether or not we're going up or down. I will be really interested to see what's going on with the encampments. Now, the city keeps a, a list of different locations, encampments. And so as that becomes available, we'll get a sense of both how many more encampments there are and where they are located. So is this pit count, is it done every month? No, it's done, uh, I, I, it's either done once or twice a year. The only one I really pay attention to is the one in January, because that's when it's cold. Uh, but but that's the one I'm talking about. And that's and that's the one that's been going up. That's the one that's been going up every year. It's been going up for the last, I think, three years. It, but I think you're going to find this year that there's a pretty significant spike. And the reason I'm saying that is both what's happening with the HMIS numbers, but also what's happening nationally in terms of other cities, other locations, and what's happening with the housing numbers. And where will that number be publicized or, or hidden away when it comes out, when, it's, when they realize what it is? It will be at the Continuum of Care, uh, which is the All Chicago, and it will be released by HUD. By HUD. Well, let, let me yeah. know. Text me when that comes out, because that's a, that's going to be a very, right. a very sobering number. So if you're running, if, if you were running for mayor, and I know you've, you've worked for an alderman before, so you know, you know how the city works and know what the problems are, uh, or the politics are behind some of this stuff. What, what would you be proposing to alleviate this problem? Never going to get rid of it, but how are we going to alleviate this problem? Right. Well, I, the first thing we have to do is deal with some short-term issues, which is there are people outside, and you got to change the policy. It's not we put people inside until we fill up the beds. It's everybody gets inside, and if we need to make more space, we do. What does that mean? There's a concept called flex space, right? So maybe you have a gym, maybe you have a an auditorium. You have a space in which you can put people, lay out mats, put cots, let them sleep that night, and then refer, whatever you do with that during the day or at other times, uh, you go ahead and do it. So you've got to have uh, space wherever it is. Uh, and, for example, the shelters used to do this in hallways. They used to do this in offices. They just put cots in there, get people inside uh, so that they don't freeze and then deal with whatever issues are the next day. So that the policy's got to change in that way. It's don't Nobody sleeps outside if they don't want to. That's where we got to go, not, not the other way around. The second thing that has to change is you have to get people inside and then process them, right? And then get their information, not get their information over the phone and then send the van to pick them up, which is what we do now. So it takes a considerable amount of time, sometimes hours to get the processing done because you've got to get somebody who's free to do it. And then you send the van. 
That doesn't work at all. Get people inside, then process them. Um, the final thing is this notion of picking up people at individual sites isn't working, right? So you can call from your street corner, and they, they say they'll send the van to get you. Impossible. It's impossible. We have to create aggregate sites, emergency rooms, wherever else homeless are congregating, community meals, uh, and use those sites at given times so that providers like me will know, okay, Eric, if you're outside, we can go to this location at this time and you can get transported to 10 South Kedzie. You will be inside and then you will be processed uh, however long it takes. So you so those are some immediate things to do. Can, can we talk a little bit more about do. solutions? Uh, can you hang on for a few minutes? I'd like to talk a little bit more sure. about solutions if, if you got time. Sure. Great, great. Uh, this is Eric Zorn. I'm sitting in for Joan Esposito here on WCPTAM. Uh, Joan will be back on Monday, and uh, we're going to take a short break for some commercials and other fun stuff, and we'll be right back with Doug Fraser of Chicago Help Initiative. Tune into the Tom Harmon Radio Program, your home for news, opinion, and insight, right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This is Eric Zorn. This is the time on Thursdays when you used to hear me talking to Joan. Every week on Thursday, she'd play me a little clip of me playing fiddle music, and then we would talk about what's in the Picayune Sentinel, which is my weekly newsletter. And uh, I appreciated that for a long time. And then uh, I got kind of busy, and Joan and I agreed that I would uh, come on as needed rather than every Thursday. So and those of you who are wondering if I'm on the outs with Joan, no, Joan and I are still cool. Uh, I am joined uh, right now by my friend, Doug Fraser, who is the executive director of Chicago Help Initiative. And we've been talking about the homeless situation and the lack of shelter beds in Chicago uh, that's made particularly urgent by the weather forecast that you just heard, that uh, we're going to have wind chills down to 20 below zero coming up. And there are all these people that you see living in tents and living uh, under viaducts and uh, sleeping on the CTA. Doug, where else do people sleep besides those places under under lower whacker i know people are there um yep. it's it's uh it's uh it's all over yeah it's all over uh the you're, you're also saying i don't know if you mentioned the emergency rooms uh yeah, he said police stations too there. yeah yep yeah so those are the both the formal recommendations and uh and there are there are lots and lots of encampments around the city now and are those creating sanitation problems, disease problems, um, other sorts of issues related to them, or are the people there fairly well behaved? How does that how is that shaken out? Yeah, but part those only in so many of some of them even have some of them have things like patrols making sure all the fires are turned off at night. They often have shared food. Uh, and the important thing to realize is that they are communities. Uh, they're maybe not the absolutely preferred community of the people who are in them, but they are groups of people who have banded together to make their lives easier. Now, we were talking before the break about solutions to this. What sort of things can, can be done? What what uh, Doug Fraser would would be saying if he were a mayoral candidate about how we need to address this, this urgent uh, problem, the social service problem. Um, and it sounds like it might require some investment, some r- diversion of resources. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah. 
Yeah, so there's two types of diversions that need to happen. In the short-term diversion, we need to move some of the money from uh, some of the permanent supportive housing programs into creating shelters. We just got to get a better balance. I'm not saying you move away from the idea of housing first, but people have to get inside when it's cold and that has to be the first priority and that's going to take funding. Now the other large cities in this country use their own corporate funds to do this. Chicago, so far as I know, and some of your listeners might be able to pull me up short on this, uh, is the only large American city that doesn't use its corporate budget to do some of this work, they use only federal pass-throughs. And that's just not cutting it. So the, the amount of money in Chicago spent on helping homeless is far lower than, you know, per person than New York and L.A. This, the last thing I really want to get at is going back to the notion of how people actually get out of homelessness. So all these people that come through, roughly 80% are not helped by the formal system. They don't die. They don't disappear. What happens to them? They reconnect with family. They reconnect with friends. And they get back in, inside and they move forward with their lives. So they have moments of crisis, moments when they turn and need help. Uh, but most often that help doesn't come from the formal system. It comes from an informal system. So here's the ticket, Eric, which is supporting that informal system, supporting the the grandmas, the aunts, the cousins, the people who step for the friends who step forward to do this. We've done a little bit of it in recent years, but nowhere near in proportion to what we could. Making those families stronger is relieving some of the stress on them, whether it's rent, utilities, space, food, whatever it takes to create a better situation. So first, these people don't end up on the street in the first place. And second, that it's easier for them to come back. So you're talking about shifting what we're focused on, focusing on people and the people who make a difference rather than high cost, high maintenance housing projects. We need some of those, right? Because there's a core of people that aren't going to reconnect with anybody ever. And we still got to help those people. But mo- for most people in this situation, that's not the case. So w- what has been driving up the rents then? I mean, you, it's one of the problems that these families are stressed because rents, you say, are skyrocketing in some of these communities. Um, yeah. What is doing that? Do you know? I, I just don't know. I was I probably I think I was probably as surprised as a lot of other people to realize that it is in the lower income communities that the rent is rising fastest. And, you know, you know, our neighborhood, I'm stunned by what houses cost around here. Well, proportionally, rent is going up higher, faster in other places. That's interesting because they, they talk about it. Certainly the, the Tribune is always rending its garments over the exodus of people from Chicago that were losing population. People are fleeing right. the taxes. And, and so you would think that that would bring rents down. Yes. Yeah. And, and there's vacant space, right? Office space. I don't know how much of that is being converted. I don't know how much other initiatives are out there. But, you know, the, the, the study I'm referencing is from the University of Chicago. I can't remember offhand the name of the group, but I'll be happy to send it to you. You can post it if anyone's interested in looking into it further. But it's a, it's what, what, what did NORC used to be? Remember, remember that? Uh, well, well na- that there? stood for National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago. Yeah, so but I think they. Whatever it is they became, those are the folks who put out that study. Yes, yes. Um, the. Uh, so I, I just. I don't get it. I To me, it seems baffling, but it's what's going on. So, in, in terms of this, I mean, you see, we talk about the supportive housing, building housing, actually constructing units for people to live in. Is, is that. 
a long-term possibility? Is that going to is that going to be something that's going to fly in the neighborhoods? That you're going to be able to build this this kind of housing and that the rents will be low enough for people to live there? Because um, I I mean it certainly seems logical to me that you want to get people out of the cold. That's that's step one. That's the most urgent thing. You don't want them sleeping in police stations and emergency rooms or on the trains. Right. Right. But right. then after that, uh, and then you want to support the families. But then what do you do with that population that is just that is incorrigible or whatever that term would be? Right. Yeah. So so there's think about uh, the folks who are chronically homeless out on the street. You're really looking at, you know, depending on who's counting, right, Eric, four to ten thousand people. So you're not looking at a huge nut in terms of the number of people. You are looking at an expensive population to take care of uh, because you're going to have to both subsidize it and you're going to have to provide the supportive services that keep people uh, OK. Uh, but it's not enormous. Uh, but it is so that is for some of the population that we serve. That's got to happen for others. It doesn't have to happen. There are other solutions of reconnecting people to family. And that's where we ought to put our focus in terms of uh, neighborhoods accepting it. You know, uh, some of this housing absolutely has a bad rap because it's poorly managed. Um, and there's definitely a an issue in presenting these projects. And it's one of the reasons why we can't build, we have not been able to build ourselves out of this issue because there's the NIMBY effect and people don't want it. I'm going to make an argument to you and I can give you some examples uh, that there is some absolutely excellent, well-managed housing out there that serves this function. You don't even know it's there. So like anything else, there is a wide variety of how it's done and how it's done, who manages it and how they manage it is key to whether or not it can endure in communities. Having said that, uh, that's a hard thing to convince people of today because even one bad building can have just a devastating effect on a, on a block. So when you were talking about where the resources are going to go, like it, it immediately it seems like what we're short about – uh, what about fifteen hundred beds, right? Um, yeah, two thousand beds. I, um, yeah, that's the argument I would make is we got to be up around four thousand, four thousand five hundred, so that we have a little slack in the system. And did we stop for the, Can I jump back on a different point? Sure, yeah, yeah. So um, this fall, the continuum of care, which manages these projects in the city, got dinged by HUD. Because HUD says from the time a homeless person is identified for placement and housing to the time that they are housed should be no more than 30 days. Seems like a long time. If you rent an apartment, you probably want to move in. It turns out in Chicago, it's over 90 days. And so HUD told us uh, that's too long and it's way too long. I was in a conversation with some folks the other day who said there remain over 1,000 vacant units within that system that have still not been filled. So there you go, Eric. If you want to, you have, according to the city official, at least 1,000 uh, supported housing units that are empty right now, and at the same time, you got people on the CTA and in tents. Now, wait a minute. So, where, where, are yeah, the, where are these units and how can that be? Yeah, they're spread out all over the city uh, in a whole series of different locations. But what happens is uh, you get you in order to get into this housing, you enter into what's called the CES, the coordinated entry system. And the CES calls off the very top of people who need housing. There's no way that it can satisfy all of the there are thousands of people on the list and hundreds get placed. Uh, 
So those people then get identified to move into housing. Uh, we, we're supposed to have a housing first policy. That is, they get moved into housing and then we go through the paperwork and the other things that need to happen in order to keep them in that housing. But that's not happening. The paperwork and all that stuff is being dealt with beforehand and there are significant delays, 90 days or more on average of moving people into that housing. So now go back to the shelter system and say, well, you come into a shelter, uh, it's determined that you're really going to need some help uh, from the government, from social service agencies to move out of that shelter. Well, even from the time you get identified as as going to be moved into a uh, an apartment, it's going to be three months. So three months from February, March, April, May, before the average person occupying a shelter is moved out now. It's way too long. Now, whose fault? Whose fault is that? Is that is that where are the resources needed to make that? The resources go through an organization called the Continuum of Care, and the Continuum of Care is a HUD funded. It's a five hundred one c three, but it's HUD funded to do this work, and it's not working out. And is it? Now, is it their? Is it their fault? Is it poor administration there? And there's not enough funding for them to get this paperwork done to get this moving along? Because you say thirty days is the standard, and ninety days is what's happening in Chicago. Right? Why? Why? Who, whose fault is that? Right. Where do you yeah, point the finger? It's an excellent question, uh, and I would pose it to the continuum of care and to the city to say what's going on here. Why are we in a crisis mode and these folks are not getting placed into housing? So do you talk to them? I honestly don't know. No, I don't talk to them anymore. I'm sorry to say. (laughs) Are you on the outs with them or what? Or is it just, uh, (laughs) well, you know, uh, if I said yes, that would be reflective of a lot of service organizations in the city who find them exceedingly bureaucratic and difficult to deal with and pretty much just keep, we do our thing, they do theirs, but what the thing they do and the thing that's not happening is extraordinarily important. Now, the Continuum of Care, is, it's a government governmental organization? You say it's funded by HUD? No, it's, 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 a, it's a 501c3 uh, not-for-profit like I am. Yeah. They are funded by HUD to manage this process. And who funds you? Uh, we're, we're mostly, we're 95% privately funded, so that when you read the introduction about who we are, that's who funds us. We do have, uh, I think we get about 50000 a year from the city to implement some of the social service programs. But everything else we have is private. This is the Chicago Help Initiative, if you're just tuning in. Um, and, and this is Doug Fraser, who's the executive director of that. And we've been talking about the uh, the homeless issue. Doug, i got to wrap this up because I'm going to be heading home soon. And uh, I'll see you in the neighborhood. And it's this has been... Um, uh, I wouldn't say a fun conversation because it's a very troubling. <laughs> it's a very troubling issue, very sad. And and you know when you see people who are sleeping on trains and sleeping under the bridges, you know that the it's a it's a tough story to begin with. And the fact that there are not. I mean, sometimes I think you're tempted. The temptation is to think, oh, these people don't want help, and they're here because they want to be here. And uh, you know, but the truth is that a lot of them would like would very much like to be in in a in a shelter or in a supportive house, but there aren't places for them. And that and that ought to make people angry and sad at the same time. Yeah, it's just crazy. Yeah, it is. Thank you for having me on. Yes, today. Doug Fraser, he's the executive director of Chicago uh, Help Initiative, a great organization. And uh, I'm Eric Zorn, sitting in for Joan Esposito on WCPT AM 820. And we'll be back right after this. 
Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Returns right now on WCPT 820. Somebody tell that announcer that Joan Esposito is on vacation. And I'm Eric Zorn sitting in for Joan today. Uh, Tori Ryder will be sitting in tomorrow, and Joan will be back on Monday. Um, you're usually listening to me at this time, 4.30 to 5 with Joan on Thursdays, although uh, we've gone to a, a part-time appearance rate on that. Uh, Joan and I uh, talked about that, and I, uh, I, my Thursdays are getting kind of crowded, so... I am coming in as needed, and they asked me if I'd fill in today, and I was really happy to do it. And thanks to Doug Fraser, thanks to Shia Kapos, and Patrick Finkston for, for joining me for a conversation. So I have a few more minutes here. I wanted to hit a few more uh, points about the mayor's race in Chicago. Um, there was an interesting moment the other night in the, in the debate on on uh, Tuesday night that uh, when I was watching that. Uh, and Willie Wilson said... I don't respond to kids when he was brushing off a pointed barb thrown by Jamal Green, uh, 27. This is the youngest candidate. Wilson is 74. Uh, uh, Jamal is 27. And Green argued that Wilson's earlier comments expressing enthusiasm for hunting down criminals like rabbits reflected a mindset that too often results in police violence. And, and I would agree with that. The tri- Tribune editorial today, an excellent Tribune editorial um, on this uh, uh, referred to uh, Wilson's remarks as hairbrained, which I uh, I wrote to uh, the uh, editor of the page and said, I see what you did there. Uh, uh, Green said, uh, Wilson should know what that means and know how it feels. And when you have that mentality that Willie Wilson has, you have Tyree Nichols, you have George Floyd, you have Anjanette Young. We cannot have that in this city. And I think this raises uh, that, that uh, um, uh, Green raises an excellent point that when you have this attitude about, uh, you know, criminals misbehaving, that, that when, you, when police have that attitude, it does res- it results in these acts of, of violence, this dehumanizing quality to it. And when you think of someone as an animal, then you treat them like an animal, then you end up, you know, not only with these tragedies, but you end up with these significant lawsuits where the taxpayers like you and me are paying the freight for these police officers who are out of control. And uh, I'm sure that uh, the hosts on this radio station have talked a great deal about how ghastly that incident was in Memphis and how unacceptable that was and how uh, it, it reflects a certain bizarre mindset. A uh, question that I have is how in the world could police officers in 2023 behave that way uh, when knowing that there are dash cams and body cams and doorbell cams and light pole cams all over the city and that what they do is going to be caught, that, that you could... You could imagine that uh, the police who beat Rodney King 30 years ago uh, did so safe in the knowledge that what they're believing that they were not going to be filmed and that uh, if anyone accused them of excessive force, they would simply deny it and people would believe them because they're police officers. And these police officers could possibly have, could, could not have any expectation like that. They could not have any belief that they would get away with it. And yet they did. Uh, and I mean, it's, it was inevitable that the beating that they administered to uh, to Tyree Nichols was going to be caught on film, and almost inevitable that they were going to be disciplined. They may not have realized they were going to be uh, fired and 
probably prosecuted and likely imprisoned for what they did. So you're wondering, what is somebody thinking? What is a group of five police officers uh, plus other people who are uh, bystanders not doing what they should have been doing? What were they thinking about? Uh, And the fact that they clearly knew that this, they had to know this was going to happen if they did it anyway, suggests a, a certain a certain pathology, a certain a sickness within the, within the uh, the ranks of of police officers that 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 we really need to address. And I don't have any answers to that. I, my my question just is, what were they thinking? They weren't thinking. Uh, they were reacting just completely viscerally. And again, this is a, a, a part of sort of dehumanizing the people you're policing and not seeing yourself as their as their employee, as their servant, as serving the community, but as as brutalizing the community. And the fact that that Willie Wilson would respond to Green this way, saying I don't I don't respond to kids, um, I think was was politically uh, tone deaf and really off putting. That that uh, Jamal Green is he is the he is going to be part of the future of, of politics in Chicago. Willie Wilson is going to be part of the past. I certainly hope he doesn't win the mayor's race because he is nowhere near qualified to be mayor. Uh, he's on his way out. J. Mal Green is on his way up. We do. We must listen to people who are who are in his position. We must respond to them. Be, be my thought. Speaking of people who are uh, a little politically tone deaf, I want to touch also on this news story about Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox. She announced she's dropping sex abuse charges against our Kelly and uh, some of his alleged victims and their allies complained really bitterly about this decision, but it, it made sense for Fox to pull back on these cases. She's a county prosecutor. Uh, she's got scarce resources uh, pursuing charges against R. Kelly when he's been already been convicted. He's already once again in the in the federal dock. Uh, it's, there's almost no chance he's ever going to walk free. I can certainly understand her saying, I'm not going to devote resources to, to, in a sense, trying to lock up someone who's going to be locked up already anyway. It's like you know pursuing a, a murder case against someone who's uh, got life without parole. There's, there's very little point in it. Uh, and uh, people were angry about it. And my question f- for her for this in this situation is why she didn't just sort of quietly back away and put this on hold, let it sit, but don't make an announcement. She she actually g- gave a, a news conference and you know talked about and tried to de- and was sort of defending herself during this this news conference, explaining herself. And I, I think this is an instance where you don't need to defend yourself. You don't need to explain. You just need to you just need to step back a little bit and say, I'm not going to be I'm not going to be pursuing this uh, to, to your own deputies. But uh, just you know, wait and see what happens. If, if by some fluke miracle R. Kelly is acquitted at his upcoming trials and his appeals are successful, then 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 maybe you would say, well, okay, well, in order to make sure justice is served, I'm going to pursue these cases. But this is Kim Fox for you that she doesn't. Is she again like 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 uh, like Lori Lightfoot? She doesn't seem to have the political instincts that she needs. Um, to 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 rise any higher. People were always talking about about Kim Fox as being someone who's going to be the next mayor, be maybe even a statewide candidate. And and with the Jesse Smollett case and with the controversies like this, I think she's really has 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 done herself in as terms of her political future. She may be able to stay state's attorney for as long as she wants. I don't. I'm not sure. But uh, this is an example of some of some. Um, 
pretty bad, pretty bad political instincts out there. And uh, you can read about this and uh, in the Picayune Sentinel. It's my weekly newsletter. Uh, you can search for that online. I'm at Substack. You can also email me directly, ericzorn at gmail.com. And I'll just add you to the list. It's as easy as that. Uh, I want to thank WCPT for having me in today. Thank Joan for letting me sit in on her in, in her chair here. And uh, Tori Ryder will be with you tomorrow. And uh, then Joan will be back on Monday. This is Eric Zorn with you. Thanks for listening. See you later.